Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. There were times, obviously, you know, you ask every question that you can ask. Uh, sometimes, you know, I was uh, terrorizing the Christian God, demanding to sit down and talk to him over a bottle of Stoli and really answer some questions. Because things don't make sense at that point. You know, things that people say to you, like, um, it's all for the best, or it's God's will, or there's a greater plan, and you just feel, oh, you know. Come on. Maybe, I really believe that there were were 70 right answers, but those weren't the ones. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on this episode, we're talking about IIE, the sixth track from Tori's fourth album, From the Choir Girl Hotel. this because I was wondering about this as somebody else called in with this. I thought it was a cute question. How do you pronounce cut number six on the album? On the new album? What is cut number six? I-I-I-I-E. That's how you say it? That's the one. Just wondering. Well, hello, David. Hi, Aif. See what I did there? I-I-E. Yeah. I see what you did. You're so lucky that your name lends itself to a Tory pun. You know, it took me years to settle on that. I used to be, I ordered you an Eve cake. Oh, I like that too. Are those the two? Was there a third in the running? Oh, well, Space Person was my original first ever Tory username. That's Space gr- Person. Uh-huh. Non-gender specific. Right. Well, because I, Space Dog was taken. And I was like, I'm not a dog. I'm a person. Can you can you explain Eve cake to me? Because I like it, but it doesn't rhyme with pancake well it sure doesn't it, th- so obviously this was 2002 or later that i chose i ordered you an eve cake i don't know why because it kind of was like beefcake i don't know it makes no sense so it was long after iie could have been a possibility before i saw it and someone else said why is your name i think it was sarah parker or somebody in the no forum said why is your name eve cake when it could be iif and i was like oh that's dumb and then just like one day I woke up and I was like, you know what? I should be IIEF. And I'm IIEF across all platforms. I luckily wised up before it was taken. I think you did the right thing. Thank you. I'm jealous. Although Tori has sung the name David in a couple songs, but it's not the same. If she really loved me, she would give me a shout out on stage when she sang Jackie Strength and sing Worshipping David Anderson. But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> if she cared. Uh how are you? How you been? I'm doing extremely well. I hope that's okay to say. 
I mean, yeah, if you're doing well, it's great to say. I am. Um, how are you? I'm pretty good. How's your day-to-day? How's your life? You know what? I've settled into a routine for the time being. I'm kind of okay with it. So it is what it is. Even though I hate that expression, I don't know why I just used it, but it is, I guess. So it is what it is. It is what it is. How about you? <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. And that's how I am. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I'm so thrilled to be working our way through from the Choir Girl Hotel. I can't even tell you. Boys for Pele took us, I don't know, three or four years, and this is going to take us no time at all. I know. I was thinking about that before we started this episode. We're at the halfway mark already. This is track six, halfway through. How did you feel about IIE the first time you heard it? And a question from Category Follow-Up. Did you pronounce it correctly? when you first heard it? That is a good question. I Thank you. I Thank think you. Thank you. they're always good questions, Ayaif. You know, pretty much, I guess it's always been the case that whenever we get a track listing for a new Tory album, we think it's fake. Or we're like, what? Fat Slut, Yo George, IIE, these can't be real. And that was the case for sure with IIE. That had to have been this, the strangest title we'd seen on paper up until that point. And yeah, we weren't entirely sure how to pronounce it. And even if we'd heard the song, we still wouldn't have been sure because she never actually says or sings IIE exactly like that in the song. So someone had to ask her at some point, I think. And she was like, yeah, it's IIE, but she doesn't sing it like that. And I loved it. This was one of my favorites upon first listening. And I hadn't heard a preview or a leak or anything um, of this song ahead of getting the album. So I really responded to it. It's kind of a feat of studio production, I think. And I like that it's kind of short and sweet. Um, It really kind of lands a punch and then gets out before you even know what happened. So how about you? When did you hear it for the first time? And did you know how to pronounce the title? Um, I have to admit... I did not know how to pronounce the title. I was of the team of people who called it IE, just one I pronunciation. IE, IE. That's what I used to call it until I was in the 2001 meet and greet in San Diego. And my friend Sean, who was next to me, wanted her to sign his lyric book. And she said, oh, yeah, sure, honey. What page would you like me to sign it on? And he said, IE. And she said, oh, IIE? And he's like, yeah, IE. And she said, IIE? <laughs> it was really funny. Mm. So I'm like, oh, don't mess around. So I that's say. in 2001 is when I was confirmed at how it was pronounced. That's hilarious. Um, she passive aggressively corrected him. Exactly, twice. Keep, oh, IIE? Keep in mind, this is from the same period and from the same woman, obviously, who forgot that her song was in fact called Hey Jupiter. And when she lost oh, her yeah. way on the strange little webcast, she was like, I don't know. I just call it Jupiter. I was looking under J. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I loved this song. This was my first favorite song from this album. I loved this song. I cannot express it enough how I loved and continue to love this song. Well, I'm going to ask you to try to express it because we're going to talk about it for two hours. I certainly won't be able to express it verbally. Certainly not. No, this song to me is everything. This song is just a remarkable feat of writing and emotional vulnerability and the raw power that Tori Amos has, specifically Mm. Tori Amos has. It's all of those things. It's 100% on all of those things but it's also really good just like to listen to it's a really good song I've never tired of it never once if it ever pops up I will stop everything I'm doing I agree with you it's successful on all fronts and every time the song ends I imagine Tori like coming out of a backflip as a gymnast would and landing with her arms up like I did it she really sticks it yeah (laughs) 
That's not what I imagine when the song ends. When the song ends, I imagine the breakdown from Sessions. Okay. <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah, I imagine like, why isn't it there? Because whereas you said it was short and sweet and lands a punch and she gets in and gets out, I don't want it. I want it to be longer. I want that improv. I want that like live improv from 98. I want that to be part of this goddamn studio track. That's the only thing wrong with this song is that it's not longer. Nope. I think it's perfect the way it is and we get both versions and it grew and evolved and we get that live version which is almost a different animal i Mm. love it i want the cleaned up live version that they were throwing around for tavinas and back because you know there's one of course they were like yeah i want that that's what i want god dang it god i love this song it's troubling to me how often we're victims of tori's whim depending on the day literally if the wind is blowing the right direction we might get datura as opposed to zero point same thing here i think we got cruel instead of iie but if she locked in the the track list the next day she might have made a different choice would you call this a top 10 song no oh really (laughs) no not top 10 no this is definitely my top 10 You go, girl. I love that. And it's clear, you've said time and time again that you love when Tori, there's rhythm, when there's noise, when she's a little dirty, and obviously your top 10 reflects that. It was also a little surprising to me that you had Siren in there. Why? Siren's a brilliant song. No, just because I'd never really heard you talk about it before, but I guess it was the love that dare not speak its name. I hold everything important to me close to the chest. That's true. (laughs) It's like pulling teeth with you, but we're getting there. All right, so what ranking specifically in the top 10? Oh, I don't know. I could never. It cha- I like Toria. It changes on a whim. Okay, but it's solidly in the top ten. <laughs> it's definitely in the top. It probably is even in the top five. Yay! The first time I heard it, I was you know in my apartment with my friend Liz, and we were listening to it and just really, really into it. I feel like I know Liz at this point with the way you've described her over the course of these Choir Girl episodes. I can just imagine as that rhythm started up from IIE that Liz started swiveling her cargo shorted hips, jangling (laughs) her- She wasn't wearing shorts. She was wearing work jeans. Okay. All right. Was she jangling her wallet chain then? Possibly. Okay. She would do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll try to get around for our choir girl wrap up. Please do. I will. But first, we're going to talk about our guests. Today on the show, we have two super fans, Natalie Ladico Bond and David Keith Alexander. Everybody here gets three names, except for Andy Gray. Andy Mental Wicked Gray. We tried to get him on this episode. In fact, we held this episode to hopefully get him on. No luck yet but hopefully we can have him on in a later episode and now should we say thank you to our patreon supporters and then get right into it yes i'm way behind on my thank you notes let's get caught up okay we'd like to say hello to new subscriber andre aspire i'm gonna take it down out to the andre scene We'd like to say hello to new Patreon, Steve Savignac. Sweet the Steve. Otis Kyle Funderberg just jumped up to our $25 level. Hey. Funder wishes he could be a patron, and he is. Lori Ellis jumped up to the $10 level. Hi, Lori. Hi, Lori. Thanks, Lori. We'd like to say hello to new patron, Waylon Waddell. Well, well, it's Waylon Waddell. Hello to new patron, James Burtz. I Burtz myself today to see if I could James. Alicia Scholl jumped in at our $10 level. Hi, Alicia. It's cold, cold, cold in my Alicia Scholl. Marina Nelson jumped in at our $10 level. Good to see you again, Marina. Dang, we got the full Nelson. And hello to Michael Guy, who jumped up to our $50 level. Hi, Michael Guy. That Michael Guy. That Michael Guy. That guy. Comma, Michael. (laughs) This one's for you, Michael. And thanks to everybody who supports us. We couldn't, shouldn't, and would not 
do it without you. Mm -mm. We'd also like to give a wonderful warm thank you and a wonderful warm hug to Shay Stymack, who put together our show notes for this and all episodes. She works tirelessly so that we're ready to record when we're ready to record. And so we thank you, Shay. Why does there gotta be a shakerfice? Shakerfice. Just say yes, you little shayshanist. Our shayanist. Just say yes, you little our shayanist. Okay. You can shave every hair on my shayst. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> they're all good. Well, they're all something. We'd also like to say thank you to James Farron, who put together the show notes for the live section of the show. James! So, thanks to James Farron. Hi, Jimmy. And without further ado, let's kick it to a cover of IIE. In true 90s fashion, here's the Goodyear Pimps, or the Pimps, with their cover of IIE. David, on the break, did you do one more? I can do one more. I think I got one more in me. I could use a little <laughs> lip gloss boost first. Give it to me. 
IIE is the sixth track on From the Choir Girl Hotel with drums by Matt Chamberlain, programmed by Andy Mental Wicked Gray, bass by Justin Meldell Johnson, acoustic Electric Hank and the amazing Echoplex by Steve Caton, and Mellotron, strings, boozy, nuns, and vocal by mm. Tori Amos. And Tori Amos as nuns. Do you think that's background vocals? Is that what she means? I have to believe that that's what that means, yeah. Those singing nuns from Caudalite Sneeze are back. Exactly. In right. IIE. Is that how you take that? Okay, cool. Yeah. This is, we really need to take a deeper look at the credits on Tori's albums. It's kind of like on Doll Posse when, you know, Pip and Santa and whoever else are singing backing vocals on each other's songs and they're all kind of floating mm-hmm. in and out. These nuns are the same way. We've got a Greek chorus yeah. here. Do we ever see the nuns again? Do you know? As background vocalists? Well, it would make sense if they showed up on Pandora, but I don't think they do. <laughs> they're just referenced in the oh lyrics, maybe. <laughs> They just left her hanging. They did. I love that, though. Has Tori ever credited herself with a non-keyboard instrument or vocal on an album up until this point? Like, we got Bull as Bull on Professional Widow and kind of cute stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But this is the first instance Mm -hmm. I'm aware of. I love it. Let's talk about, I'm interested in this Hank. So he plays acoustic guitar, electric guitar, Hank guitar is what I'm assuming, mm. or is it electric Hank guitar? I think it's a Hank, like a country. There's some country reference, maybe. I think that's, I don't know what a Hank guitar is. And the amazing Echoplex. Have we talked about the Echoplex? I know we talked about it on our primer. Yeah. Do we think electric Hank is a kind of instrument or guitar, or do we think that's a term that they came up with to describe a sound that he kind of created in the studio, like the haha guitar from Donut Song? Like, all, yeah, exactly. Ha <laughs> ha, that guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Donut um, Song is hilarious. I think you're probably right. It's something they came up with, Electric Hank. Like, it's kind of like Hank Williams. That's all I can think of is, like, country but electric. Yeah. And you never know when they were, like, partying and everything was so collaborative and they were being crazy. It also could have been Caton's take on the electric slide. Mm, (laughs) That's a good thought. Speaking of Caton, I want to play this little bit right here where he explains the Echoplex. Okay. You're in Martian Studios for the first time. Do you have any early memories of the recording process, like the first track you laid down? or? Well, the first track I laid down was uh, just me. I made a little sequence on, a, on an Echoplex. It's an old tape echo unit. It's analog and it's tape. Old school. It's nice. Yeah, it's old school and it sounds great. And you can put it on feedback and it'll and you can determine the amounts of feedback and you can get it to just repeat, repeat, repeat. But as it's repeating, you get a, this degradation of sound. And that was the first track that I, I don't want to say played, but you. recorded or laid yeah. down. It was the first track and. Uh, I think everybody felt good because it's like, yeah, well, there it is. That's uh, I don't know what I don't know what became of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know where it ended up in the mix or at all or whatever. Because you know, as it went along, it got more and more out of sync with right. the track, and it's certainly really not what you what you want. You might have been able to like plug it in for certain a bit or something, but I don't I don't really know what happened to it. But that was the first part I played, mm-hmm. and uh, everyone felt at ease because they knew that stylistically mm-hmm. it was right yeah whether or not it actually ended up in the in the song is another thing but the point of view was correct so that's a little bit on how that recording came to be mm-hmm. 
Caton says he's not sure if what he did with the Echoplex actually made it onto the album, but it's credited, so one has to believe that it is on the album, right? He's only unsure because he never listens to the albums. Right. Imagine just being so talented. You're like, whatever, I don't need to hear it. I'm sure it's amazing. I don't even know. I just move on. I don't revisit my past work. That's how I am with these podcasts. I just put the files in one big master file and then just send it out to the public. I don't even listen. No, I know. You're the Caton and I'm the Tory, meaning I just constantly go back and analyze everything to death and then recondition it with brand new vocals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> IIE appears on From the Choir Girl Hotel, released May 4th, 1998 in the UK and May 5th, 1998 in the US. It next appears in 2006, so nearly 10 years later, on her box set, A Piano, in an alternate mix. Let's listen to that. If I had the opportunity to change one decision Tori had made over the course of her career, it might be this reconditioned version of IIE. Why? I really take exception to the changes that were made, but most specifically, the complete removal of that exhale at the end of the song. Actually, it's an inhale. I'm sorry. That kind of dramatic. (gasps) The fact that that's gone, I think that is the capper of the song. And the fact that that was just sort of lopped off breaks my heart every time. I can't even acknowledge that it exists or doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, let's read a little bit from the liner notes to sort of get behind this decision since we're talking about it. She says, Cruel and IIE were both fun tracks to reapproach for this box set because this is where technology can be your friend. We really wanted to remix both songs and with the records we'd done since choir girl under our belt we were really excited about the chance to take a fresh look at iie and cruel so we had talked a little bit about this on the cruel episode too about how technology things had changed in the studio and they were really excited to try their new tricks after the years of working on this album and that's where they went with iie now don't you think that it's okay to have this version because we'll always have the choir girl version I do, and I get that. And, you know, with Tori, I always say, like, more is more. Give me all the remixes. Give me all the alternate takes, whatever. So, for sure, what I take exception to is that she actually says that she considers the versions of Cruel and IE on a piano to be better, or the preferred mixes for her. And at that point is when I'm like, whoa, let's slow down for a second, (laughs) because... (laughs) Right. What do you think of the alternate mix? I agree with you, probably. It's not my one. If we all got one Tori do-over, that's not what I would use it on. You've use the term ground down its fangs Mm -hmm. before and i think that that's very true i think as it appears on choir girl hotel it's very biting it's raw and it's that raw emotion the raw production really lends to the raw emotion in the song it's just kind of like messy and she goes for it and there's no self-conscious cleanup i guess and years later she's approaching
touching a piano with all it kind of sounds self-consciously cleaned up all the juicy bits are taken out the bridge in particular on the album version is so powerful and to me i don't know that there certainly up until this point there had ever been a more wild moment from Tori musically where it really explodes and it's distorted um and it sounds yeah. like i love the word messy that you use because it does sound messy but in the best way possible and no matter what system you're listening to it on it almost sounds like it can't be contained right way of describing it and then on the piano version it's all totally tamed down i don't know pardon me if i set you on fire do you mind no hello love might you say yes (laughs) there's that and there's also there's like a weird insectile humming part of the loop and it is on the album version but it's bumped way way up on a piano and to Mm -hmm. me it's distracting and i almost can't listen to it it's like grating to me so i don't know this is reconditioned for sure, but it's one of the more extreme examples, I think, of when she's revisited something. We'll always have from the Choir Girl Hotel, and we'll soon hopefully have the remaster. You think 25-year remaster? Uh, I'm not Horizon? I'm not ruling anything out. Anything's possible. Fingers crossed. Fingers and toes crossed. And as far as where it appears, that's it. It doesn't appear on any legs and boots. It doesn't appear on any original bootlegs. It doesn't make a strange random appearance on Gold Dust. It never shows up again in her catalog. That is shocking to me. To me, this is the centerpiece of the album and not just because it falls square in the middle, although that that helps. And this was such a centerpiece too of the live show. So the fact that it only appeared in these two places is mind boggling. And I think if you were to take a survey, the one thing that most people are surprised about is the fact that it didn't appear on Venus, right? That there's no live version from Plugged on Venus, so. Which is so strange to me because it's such an amazing song and it's one of her best. And it's got such a, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe it has such a huge fan base. It's got a lot of stands. There's a lot of IIE stands out there. So I'm just really surprised. Frankly shocked, ma'am. I am as well. And I also feel like she hasn't discussed the song that much. Do you think that's because it's highly personal, possibly? I really do don't know the answer to that. I don't think she shied away from discussing very personal, arguably more personal songs than this in the past. But in comparison, it seems like we couldn't get her to stop talking about Agent Orange, a song which (laughs) I think is often glossed over or forgotten. And we have a top tier track like this. And she's like, no. So I don't know. Top tier definitely. And it's mind boggling. It boggles my mind. My mind is thus boggled. Well, let's get into what she did have to say about it. Okay. So let's start with the quotes and let's start with the quote that we played a few minutes ago which is from the epk the choir girl electronic press kit where she talks about new mexico okay let's talk about it david you have anything you want to say before i go off no you already said new mexico so i'm just going to keep quiet and let you go just because we're in new mexico why does the mustang have to be dilapidated <laughs> it could have been a classic completely restored mustang but it no could have been, but no one thinks of new mexico and thinks of driving in my classic mustang they think dilapidated mustang and i'm like okay yes new mexico may be the poorest state in the nation but come on do you associate mustangs with new Mexico, regardless of whether they're dilapidated or no. not? Okay. No. Neither do I. I so, no. I have such a breadth of associations with New Mexico from growing up there and having lived there. Tori needs to appoint you as her new Mexico... Ambassador? Ambassador or, yes, expert that she consults whenever she's going to reference the state so that she okay. doesn't make a mistake like this. I can like handle this. that. Yeah. I love that there seems to be a real element of, like, a vision quest. 
happening here. And mm. it's kind of reminding mm. me of the Father Lucifer story she told. But more than that... Oh, yeah. Which, for reference, is her going into the underworld to find out that Lucifer is a woman who drives an ice cream truck and is dressed in white. Similar to Black Dove as well. I don't remember her discussing her dreams as being such a huge influence on an album or specific songs like this in the past. And we've gotten that so far with Black Dove and IIE here. When she has this kind of recurring vision or dream of this vision quest through the desert. And I feel like the song itself really captures the feel of that sonically. It does sound like the desert to me. And the loop, the programming, there's something about it that's almost lurching. And it makes me picture kind of a corpse made of, you know, sun-bleached bones really dragging itself across the desert. So I'm like, yep, she nailed it. She got it. Yeah, I guess you're right. I hear the desert as well. And I don't know if that's just because I'm projecting towards the song what she said about the song. Because that bit, when she's on Storytellers with the song in October 98, that bit of her telling the story about the song really haunts me. Mm -hmm. Some of you know that we like really good wine, so I wasn't quite sure if um, the things I was seeing was from that or if they were really happening. And uh, it was a strange time. I had just, um, I had a bad pregnancy and I lost the baby. And um, I started seeing this vision of this little boy everywhere I went. And we knew it wasn't a little boy, so I really didn't know who he was. And uh, the wine really wasn't that good, you know what I mean? So um, I would close my eyes when he would appear, and I would follow him, and he would say things like, come, come, rabbit, come on. And I would um, go, and uh, we had this 1959 um, convertible, and he was a Zuni boy, Zuni or Pueblo boy. And he would just um, stand in the back of the car with his arms like that. And we would drive for hours and hours and hours. And I would sit there, and I didn't know where we were going. But when we would get there, nobody would be alive. So um, it was a strange thing. It was like being in, I don't know, a bad Dustin Hoffman killer virus movie, you know? And I didn't know what we were supposed to do. So we would leave the town, and uh, he would tell me to build a campfire. Um, and I'm an arsonist, so I, I really like that bit. So I would build this thing, and um, he would start dancing. And um, he would say, you know, we failed today, but we have to go to the next town tomorrow. And uh, this happened over and over and over again, and we were always too late. Um, and he would sing this thing in my head, and he would go, he would pat me on the thing and say, it's okay. The state that she goes into when she's talking about the song, you know, you can really feel that it was obviously had a profound effect on her for her to write the song, but there's fewer times in her career where I can point to and say like, that is such a clear line of inspiration. Yeah. That's a clear thread. I'm so glad we have that because that is by far the most she has ever offered in terms of inspiration for the song or kind of where it was born. So... I want to ask you a question. Okay. Take your mind back to 1998. Mm -hmm. My eyes are closed. You get the track listing for 
the very first time, mm-hmm. right? I'm remembering. I'm remembering. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You go through, you're like, oh, spark, cruel, black dove, January. That sounds interesting. Raspberry swirl. Jackie's strength. Who's Jackie? And then you hit <laughs> I-I-E-E. Like, you don't know how to pronounce it, right? No. So, did you have any idea what it meant? No. I kind of imagined that it was kind of a vocalization or a sound that one might make mm-hmm. possibly while plummeting off a cliff like i fading into the distance <laughs> oh yeah yeah but yeah i was definitely not pronouncing the i separately as in iie it was more like i yeah I-E. okay I-E. great okay now back in 1998 i did not understand what iie meant until i watched the sessions performance where she's screaming why then why i i i i i i i I suddenly got it, you know? IIE is the sound of just grief, shaking your fist at the heavens and demanding answers. Yeah, yes. And that to me, I just thought that was the most beautiful poetic moment just to take that grief, that extension of that grief. The song's not called Why. The song is called this like howling, immeasurable pain. That's what the song is called. Do you really think the word why morphed into IIE? Do you think that was part of the songwriting process? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I stand behind that. Mm -hmm. Because she doesn't always do it perfectly like that. Why, I, 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 But when she did it on sessions that way, it just was clear. Mm -hmm. It was like a fog lifted and I understood. And you were never the same after that summer. I don't think I was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is from the Choir Girl promo bio, May 1998. She says, IIE came out of a sense of loss and sacrifice. There's a deep love on this record. This is not a victim's record. It deals with sadness, but it's a passionate record for life, for the life force, and a respect for the miracle of life. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit or sort of filling the blanks in with other discussions that you and I have had, but I sort of take exception to her need to emphasize that this is not a victim's record, only because that would never be my response when I hear any of Tori's music, but specifically not this album. If she had and sort of offered that, would your takeaway have ever been that this is a victim's record or that this woman is wallowing and suffering? No, I never would have thought that either, personally. But if you look at Tori as a musician and how some people have... I mean, everybody has a response to her, and it's a strong response, whether you love her or you hate her. Rarely people are in the middle, right? Rarely people are in the middle. Sure. So hearing how people that don't necessarily care for her hearing how they hear the music is always so surprising to me she's always singing about strength and overcoming your demons and overcoming the things that have happened to you and it's very powerful music about strength so to hear other people say oh she's whining or like oh that always surprises me so maybe she's trying to make it clear i have never found personally tori's music to be anything other than life affirming And part of that is she acknowledges that life is all-encompassing and it's not always going to be positive or pleasant. And some people can't even acknowledge that or they don't want to go down that road. So I guess the Mm -hmm. fact that she's exploring darker themes, automatically some people make assumptions that she's whining or wallowing or a victim or whatever that is. And it's like, no, you're just kind of acknowledging the way you feel, but that's even too much for some people, I guess. So Well, you also have to remember, too, where that was said. This was all said in the Choir Girl promo bio, which goes out to not just the fans. It goes out to everyone, right? 
she's trying to sell this record. And I wonder if this is a response in some weird internalized way to Boys for Pele, because whether she's intending to or not, maybe it's gotten into her head what some people have said about that record. And maybe that's her saying, like, this isn't like that. This isn't the same kind of record. Yeah, I think you're right. That's very possible. And usually kind of have to read between the lines because she doesn't often acknowledge her press or the way that people have responded Mm -hmm. to her albums. But it's clear that she is aware of it. And once in a while, she'll sort of make a comment or let something slide that she is maybe not reacting to it, but that she did sort of take it in or at the very least is aware of it. So I think you're right. I think this might be one of those times. Why don't you read this quote from World of Music, May 1998? In lyrics such as IE or Spark, you have dealt with anger and sadness on a very personal level. And Tori says, the anger lies in each of us. It just depends on how you deal with it. You have to dive into your own psyche to find out who lives there. Most of the time, the monster that hides inside you is the one you let loose on others. I'm not afraid of sadness. Yet even when you cry until you can't cry anymore, you get to the point where you decide, for example, that you want to play with a drummer. Sadness lets you wear stilettos. Sadness lets you dance in the moonlight. She just has dark rims around her eyes. There couldn't be a more Tory quote if we tried. If we were doing an auto-generator, Tory quote auto-generator, this might come out. (laughs) Have you ever gotten to the point where you've cried until you can't cry anymore, but you're like, "Mm, I still want to play with the drummer? Well, I think the way I take this quote is that even when you've gotten to that point, to not be afraid of sadness because sadness brings about different decisions than you might make when you're happy. Because she says, yet even when you cry until you can't cry anymore, you get to a point where you decide, for example, that you want to play with a drummer. So you decide different things. Sadness leads you down a different path where you may learn new things about yourself Mm -hmm. or take different roads or make different choices. Mm -hmm. Sadness lets you wear stilettos. We know that Tori loves to personify emotions. They're always getting dressed up in high heels and dresses and whatever. (laughs) So obviously that's what's what happening color here. is sadness's dress? Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of like that, actually. Sadness lets you wear stilettos. Sadness lets you dance in the moonlight. To me, that means no one wants to experience pain or sadness, obviously. But nevertheless, it's necessary. And it kind of opens you up to different experiences and makes you a more sensitive person, a more empathetic person, ultimately. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of the song. Now, it's so clear to me that the song comes out of the pain. She's talking a lot about uh, the life force. So it's clear to me that it comes out of the circumstance of the miscarriage, right? But it was at least partially born in 1996. She played a little bit of it at a soundcheck, primarily the bridge. Do you recall? I do, yeah. Should we listen to that? Yeah, let's put it up to debate because we've listened to it before and David says he doesn't hear so much of IIE. I clearly hear, just say yes, you little arsonist, with your ease and your ease and I do one more. I hear all of that. Now, the beat's different and things like that, but let's put it up to debate. It's from the same soundtrack as Cruel when she got back from her vacation where she spent her vacation writing brand new material. That vacation must have been rough. Here's September 9th, 1996, Boston, Massachusetts, Soundcheck. And we're just going to play the whole thing.
I'm so pissed off, David. You're pissed off? Yes, I am. Tell me why. Let's walk me through it. Let's see if we can resolve that. Because you get a masterpiece like Little Earthquakes. You find out what kind of performer this woman is. You know that she's a natural live performer, that the most amazing, incredible things happen. Like, fine, maybe you don't do it right away. But you get to the end of the pink era and you think, like, God, she's really got it. This is not a fluke. The 94 (laughs) tour, you don't follow this woman around with a camera. You don't audio record every goddamn thing, every sound check, every live show. How could you call yourself a record label? How could you? You think they should have had a camera crew just following her around all the time? Yes, exactly. 100% of all the time. I don't think you're wrong. How many masterpieces Pieces right. slip through the cracks. You're absolutely right. Yeah, exactly. How many sound checks weren't recorded? Most of them. I would argue that Cruel was further along at this point as a song. Nine than, months. Yeah, <laughs> than IE was. But I still feel after having sort of walked through it with you that both of those songs, obviously they're born in 1996 or the seed from them was planted. But even the lyrics that she's writing and some of the concepts she's exploring, I think were sort of altered after she had other experiences that sort of informed the Choir Girl album, of course. But, you know, the use of the word arsonist is so grounded in the Pele era. That mm-hmm. idea of playing with fire and fire in general, but also being an arsonist. You know, at some point on Do Drop In, she started changing the lyric of Jupiter from this little masochist to this little arsonist. So this yes. this lyric is kind of like a hangover from that era, for sure. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, May 3rd, 1998. The wind-blown grooves and featherweight implied backbeats are impressive, but the mood swings are even more so. The music grows heavy with a flick of Amos's wrist, and as fast as the storm gathers, it dissipates, leaving serene blue skies. There are outbreaks of funk stomping, followed by moments of fragile, impressionistic beauty. Now, when Amos rises on the piano bench, she's responding to an intoxicating, all-consuming rhythm her music has hinted at before, but rarely attained. She says, What I found is the primal rhythm. I knew the songs could hold their own, but what's been amazing is the way they've opened up and blossomed. It's like the songs gained three new mothers. Hmm. Maddie C, one big mother. Thank you. (laughs) I was reaching for that, yeah. I like that she was feeling so inspired with the band, creating as a unit, 
creating as a group. Really interested in rhythm at this time, obviously. Yeah, and I think she's acknowledging that collaborating and bringing other artists in at an earlier point in the process sort of allowed the songs to be maybe more rich than they would have been otherwise. Yeah, because then it's all on her shoulders to create and they just sort of layer around what she's created. Right. Leaves no room for them, really. Everything is better when more eyes are on it. Yeah, and I kind of like, I think this is sweet and really generous of her to sort of acknowledge the other musicians as co-parents or mothers of the songs Mm -hmm. because up until this point, not only was that not the case, but Tori had actually referred to herself as a seahorse. She doesn't need anyone else to mate with. (laughs) So Now, let's talk about PJ Harvey because PJ Harvey, she made the distinction that she's Polly Jean Harvey and PJ Harvey's like when she's with players. Uh Did you ever consider that Tori Amos would create some sort of new name for the band? Like Tori Amos and the New Mothers or whatever. Tori and the New Mamas. Yeah, exactly. But did you ever think like, okay, this may be where she's headed? Not necessarily, but I do think that Tori and PJ Harvey are similar in the sense that at one point PJ Harvey was the band and then with To Bring You My Love, I think PJ Harvey more so referred to her as a solo artist and a stage persona as opposed to Polly Mm -hmm. Harvey the person. And I think Tori Mm -hmm. has her version of that. They both just happen to be called Tori. (laughs) But when she goes off into Tori... (laughs) Well, no, she makes a very clear distinction about Tori. It's funny because I was listening to a 2002 bootleg not too long ago and she refers to herself. She's talking about her niece Kelsey and Kelsey calling her Aunt Ellen. So when she refers to Tori the woman, we're always forgetting that she probably doesn't go by Tori. She maybe goes by Ellen. It's possible. We've also heard her dad call her Tori Ellen. So maybe they're just kind of interchangeable. But yeah, with close family and friends, it's reasonable to assume that they all call her some variation of Ellen. (laughs) Should we start calling her Myra Ellen again? No. I'm so glad that stopped. From the audience? (laughs) Should we scream it out? I'm just compelled to scream it out. You want to resurrect that? God, no. I think she'd be so angry. Well, I'd be right there with her. Somehow, that of all things just seemed to go away on its own. So thank goodness. Thank God. <laughs> we didn't have to stage any kind of intervention with the crowd. Like, why would you, if someone has made it clear to you that they hate being called something, it's like her preferred pronouns. Let's be honest. It's her goddamn name. Why would you call her Myra Ellen? She's made it clear she hates it. I don't know. There's some sort of weird sense of satisfaction and feeling like you know something about her, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's like maybe. a demon. You know, if you speak its true name, you wield some kind of power over it. You're like Myra <laughs> Ellen, play space Myra dog. Myra Ellen. <laughs> Horrifying. Let's play this from Sessions at West 54th, her drunken interview with David Byrne. You've, I, I do love you really this interview. think she was inebriated? I don't. Are you joking? You may be inebriated. <laughs> this is November 14th, 1998. Here's Tori talking to David Byrne with, she's got wine nose. Okay. She's got wine nose. She can't remember what name she wanted to be called. She calls Dynasty Dynasty. Dynasty. Which is like, okay. <laughs> I don't think that has yeah. anything to do with her being drunk. I think that has more to do with her being Tory. You know, British say dynasty is dynasty. So maybe she's confused, but she's wasted. I've never seen anyone more drunk in my life. Was it dynasty or Dalis? And she says, I almost became Sammy J. But the character's <laughs> name is Sammy Joe. Right. So who knows what she was going to be? Uh, did working with a, uh, the decision to work with a band, was any of that influenced by people having done dance remixes of some of the songs? Well, you know, a couple of things happened. Um, before all that happened, on Boys for Pele, Manu Kache played drums. Yeah. yeah. You know Manu. And uh, he goes to me, listen, I played, I used to record almost all the tracks, piano vocal or piano harpsichord live mm-hmm. to tape. And then all the musicians would play on top of that rhythm because I'd had kind of trouble with, not all drummers, but I'd had trouble 
kind of surrendering that and trying to, you know, finding a time with, where the songs didn't get pushed. Or yeah, it's a, and it's a lot to surrender to make room for other people's parts. And you gotta trust this drummer that he knows your internal rhythm and who this, the song as I call them, girls, who, uh -huh. who this particular one is. And when she wants to pull back and when she wants to push, it's not about, you know, I've always said, you don't f to a metronome. Uh -huh. You can believe that, you know. And the thing is, it's like, I was going, Manu, I don't know if I'm ready. And he said, listen, I'm not talking about me. And this is why I loved him so much. He said, but you need to find a drummer that you can trust. That for some reason you have that thing. Because uh -huh. he's one of the greatest drummers in the world. And he said, it's not about that. It's about some kind of secret language you have. And uh, Eric Ross, who produced Under the Pink, who I lived with for a long time, called me up after I lost the baby and just said, I know the guy. And he said, this is Matt Chamberlain. you got to play with him. I, he just, he had worked with Matt's band. And um, Matt came to the tropics and just, we hired a drum set and we jammed. Uh -huh. And it was like, I know you. He goes, I know you. And that was it, and I think that was a real huge turnaround. Does Tori have any tattoos? She doesn't, right? She does. She does? Yeah. What? What are they? I've never seen it, David, but she does an improv where she talks about getting a tattoo. Montreal 2007, look it up. I think it's a tramp stamp, David. A what? Do you not know what a tramp stamp oh, is? Oh, I just didn't hear what you said. Okay, yes, I can believe oh, that. <laughs> a tr my guess is that it's probably not a tramp stamp. She probably doesn't have it on the small of her back, being a, a seasoned woman by the time she finally got it. But I think it's maybe like on her hip or like, you know, somewhere in the right under the belt region. I think you're right. I think it's a tramp stamp and I think it's bitchin' in her own red hair font. You think? Yeah. That's actually not bad. I might do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking if Victoria has a tattoo because based on how she was willing to kind of fly by the seat of her pants with the names she was considering, I wouldn't necessarily trust her decisions when choosing a permanent tattoo. <laughs> she was apparently so invested right. in this name that she couldn't even remember it. But she's drunk. We've all gotten a little tipsy when we're talking to David Byrne. She was drunk. I'm wondering if this is the night where their friendship was born, because obviously she did the original Here Lies Love CD when she duetted with Cyndi Lauper on Why Don't You Love Me and You'll Be Taken Care Of, the other song. Mm-hmm. He was laying the groundwork. So that's it for the quotes, David. That is a shockingly low number of quotes, again, for such a major song, in my opinion. It's true. I agree with you. I feel like this song, to me, it's without question. It's never even occurred to me that this might not be the center point of the album. Yeah, for sure. Um, the three songs that I would choose as the triumvirate of songs to represent this album are Cruel, IIE, and Hotel. Mm. So it's surprising to me that there's not more about it or that hasn't appeared more places. I don't know why. It was never released as a single. Maybe that's what her thought is. It's difficult to play live solo, so it never appeared on the bootlegs. Mm. She didn't bring it back in 07, so it never appeared on those bootlegs. Interesting. Not that you're asking me, but if I was going to choose three songs to represent the album as a triumvirate of sorts, you're going to get mad, though. I would substitute Spark for Hotel only because thematically, I think those three are more linked than Hotel is, which isn't to say anything negative about Hotel or that 
that it doesn't deserve to be up there because I think that it is, but I think the narrative is a little bit different. So No, I get it. Like you're thematically linking the three. And you're sonically linking them, maybe? Yeah. Okay. I think I'm I'm talking about songs to represent the sounds, I guess. Okay. Well in that case I would agree with you then. I might actually with Black Dove, I think, waiting in the wings to fill in at a moment's notice if needed. Mm. I love the idea of Black Dove as understudy. <laughs> like right. hotel fell and sprained her ankle. Black Dove, it's you. Go, go. Oh God. Who would you have play IIE in the film of From the Choir Girl Hotel? A film about a group of girls sitting around in a hotel together doing their own thing. What a compelling film. It's just like 12 rooms in a hotel, 12 vignettes. Yeah. Who would play IIE and who would play her co-star? The little boy. <sighs> As IIE, stick with me though, this is going to be like a Russian nesting doll. It would be Sarah Michelle Geller, but from the episode of Buffy where they all start drinking cursed beer and turn into Neanderthals, and by the end, Sarah Michelle Geller's hair is like all ratty and she's kind of dirty. That would just be like IIE after crawling through the desert and having a rough day in her dilapidated Mustang. <laughs> You go. Your turn. How can I follow that? It's probably going to be pretty easy. I love Sarah Michelle Gellar. Same. Okay, so for my choice, now, this might not be an obvious choice, but I've always made very interesting casting decisions. If you do, you're known for it. Exactly. That's why I have the career that I have. I would cast Selma Hayek, because if we're talking about driving through New Mexican desert in a dilapidated Mustang, you must have a woman of Latinx heritage up there on the screen. And I don't know what it is about Selma Hayek. She knows pain. She knows loss. And she can just really convey that in her in the devastation on her face but of course like she can also convey the fire and she can hold a shotgun or a rifle or like a flamethrower and she can really like come in and just say yes you pinchy arsonist whoosh that's what i think is gonna happen I love that. And now I'm picturing us all on this road trip in our Mustang and we're pulling over to visit the bar from From Dust Till Dawn where Selma Hayek is a vampire. Yes. I want to do, this is what our new project is. I want to do 12 short films uh, from the Choir Girl Hotel starring these actresses. And then uh, I feel like this would be the one directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. We'll call them our visual maxis as opposed to our visualettes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll work on that. We'll come up with a better title. Yeah. We're not married to the name yet. Who would you have play IIE in the film of From the Quagro Hotel, tweet at us. Tweet FTCH film. Tag it that way and let's get this conversation rolling. Should we get into the line by line? Yes, we should. Let's do it. All right. But first, let's hear what Shaggy's got cooked up for us. Posted to Really Deep Thoughts by Doug Smith, May 10th, 1998. First and foremost, I had door from the choir girl hotel it's amazing you know usually with a new tory cd it takes me a while i get it listen to it all the way through pick up on about two or three songs i love and listen to them most of the time occasionally picking up a new favorite here or there until i finally love the whole thing I mean, I wasn't completely in love with boys for pele until just a couple months before ftcgh But with Choir Girl, I love everything. I really do. I mean, of course, I have my absolute favorites, like She's Your Cocaine or IIE, etc. But I get chills and orgasms from each and every song on this CD. The one exception may be Pandora's Aquarium. I guess it's my obligatory grow into song. Anyway, I have literally lived on this CD since Tuesday, which I officially declared National Skip School and Go Buy From the Quagrel Hotel Day. 
Oh, which reminds me, I looked on Atlantic's page at the list of midnight parties and none in Utah were shown, but I found out that a friend of mine was at a midnight party here at Modified Records where they gave out posters and flats, whatever flats are. So I'm sad. Really though, on days I don't bring my Discman and FTCGH to school, by the end of the day, I feel worse than starving, you know? Like I just gotta have it, wow. I have to write a review of it for my school paper and I plan to write one for XY Magazine. So when I do, I may post it here. Oh yeah, and by the way, it was on special for only $11.99. I'm a little intimidated by this line by line, I'm not gonna lie to you. Same. I feel like up until this point on the album, we've had some of her most clear and straightforward songwriting, and now we get to the point where this is really abstract, for me anyway, and if we didn't have some of these quotes and frames of reference to ground the song in, I'm not sure I would have any idea what it was about just based on the lyrics. <laughs> right. Has she ever named a song after a sound before? I don't believe so. And you know, I was thinking about this earlier today as well. It's very, very rare that she titles a song and doesn't actually sing that lyric or that word or phrase in the song itself. You said that earlier, but I disagree with you. I think she sings it. I, 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 she, I, I, no. Uh -huh. Yeah, she does. That's in the loop. It's built well, into the song. Well, if she does, it's like looped or overlapped in a way that it doesn't sound exactly like that. Are you joking? I don't joke about IIE or Tori in general, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I have no funny bone when it comes to IIE. No. Yeah, she's clearly saying it. It's what she presses on her keyboard when she presses that sound down. It's her singing, IIE, 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 ah. To me, it's more... That's what it is. It's more, uh, and if I was going to spell it phonetically, it would be U-H-H. -H. It's like, uh, uh, yeah. I'm not going to sing it, but I don't hear I-E and more specifically I-I-E at all. Are you kidding? <laughs> Let's play it again. So I think she's saying... I, I, uh. Yeah, to me, I still hear I, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 Okay, I'll be honest. Listening back to it, I hear it better in the live version. I hear it better live when she's clearly pressing the button and I hear it start and I hear I-I-E. But here, it does sound to me like she's saying I-I-E, uh, E-I-I-E, uh, E-I-E, uh, E-I-E, like yeah, like it's being looped on itself, but yeah. she starts with I-I-E. That's the echoplex. The echoplex is the, it's a tape delay that like you put it in and it sort of degrades over time. Right, it, like, right. It, it like loops and loops until like the degrade becomes a part of the effect. Yeah, I get that. I wasn't really thinking about them using the echoplex on her vocals. I was always thinking of it in terms of guitar, since obviously that's what Caitlin plays. Oh, really? No, I was thinking on her vocals. Really? Yeah, well, the beginning, I thought about that quote about how they, we read it during the Cruel episode, but 
I'm happy to read it again, where she says, one of the ideas was to press a 12-inch of Cruel and to record Andy scratching this 12-inch. Then we chopped up bits of this and integrated it within Cruel's loop. Then we built the body of Cruel on top of this. I think that they did the same thing. I think that maybe they recorded her singing and his guitar playing into the Echoplex and added that into the song. All right. So I think that the IIE, because you can hear it so much better live okay maybe this is making sense to me now why because when she presses that button you can hear her saying i i e i i i think you can and maybe that's what they fed initially into the into the echoplex and that itself on the studio got looped and degraded it's possible and i agree with you for sure on the album that there's a lot of processing and that it probably started out as a more clean and straightforward iie and became distorted after everything that they did to it so that it doesn't resemble that anymore but i don't necessarily hear that live either and then outside of the loop and the primary vocal kicks in it's almost like she's saying it in the reverse she's like e i i like the e comes first as opposed to i i e you know what i mean point being i don't ever hear specifically i i e as it's pronounced or spelled in the title sung in the song itself we have the return of yeah oh yeah we do people in the future this episode was released right after our reconditioned tear in your hand episode where she was doing nothing but yeah da da dying mm. in this I, way is this a sister song for tear in your hand that's a very strange happy accident isn't it because she's never yeah da died more than she does on tear in your hand and here it is again and it's almost like the right. yeah da die has been run through the echoplex because she's not saying yeah da da die die yeah with your ease and your ease and I can't stress enough how excited I was by this lyric when I read it in the booklet because this is where my poetry was headed to. Just obtuse and impenetrable and indecipherable to anyone else. Here we are analyzing it 22 years later. Mm. What could she possibly mean? With your ease and your ease, and I do one more. And it's worth noting, since this is an aural medium, it's worth noting that ease, the first one is the capital letter E, apostrophe S, with your ease and your ease, E-A-S-E. So they're two different kinds of ease. Yes. What do you think? To me, even though looking at the printed lyrics, it's the letter E and it's not a, a series of E's, to me that always is referring to this kind of wail of grief that I think the whole song encompasses. Mm-hmm. How about you? I've never heard it explained better, probably. To me, the transcribing of the lyrics into the booklet or into the Word document that would eventually become the booklet was a whole separate process than the creation of the song. And I don't think she's creating it necessarily with a le- capital letter E in her mind. She's just playing off the sound, right? And uh-huh. if she's having this dream of this little boy who's saying, I, I, E, that's going to translate into with your E's. When she's writing it down for the lyric booklet, it's a very clear distinction in the booklet. But that doesn't mean that that's how she wrote it. It's just about the sound of the grief. I love that. And then what do you make of the flip, let's say, between ease, whether it be this wail of grief or this scream or just this sort of noise, let's say, as opposed to and your ease, E-A-S-E as in easy. What is she speaking to Um, or saying there? The only other thought I can say is in terms of sounds are like your oohs and ahs, you know, like when the crowd oohs and ahs, it's like with your ease and your ease. I don't know as far as the sound goes. Maybe she's saying with the many sounds of your grief, but also like with the way it's so easy for you. 
with the ease with which you do it. To me, this song is so closely aligned with Cruel, not only sonically, but thematically, and that they're both kind of mm-hmm. grounded in this conversation with a deity or all the deities, according to Tori, or some higher power, sort of trying to rationalize why this happened. And to me, and your mm-hmm. ease, spelled E-A-S-E, is almost kind of the same sentiment as I can be cruel, I don't know why. Like, why do these things mm. happen? And this was taken away from me in like the blink of an eye and you make that look so easy even though it's gutted me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think the capital E stands for Echoplex? I do now. Is she speaking to someone with the letter E? Like, is this a code for something? Ecstasy maybe? Who is she talking to? Who is the, with your, who is the your in with your ease? God? Yeah, I really don't know. I mean, there's so many possibilities here. This could be dialogue, let's say, from that Zuni or Pueblo boy that she's referenced being spoken to her. She could be speaking this to a deity, and that's sort of my inclination to lean towards that explanation, that Tori is speaking that to a higher power. But it's not clear, that's for sure. Well, let's fill it in with the next line. Need a is the person that she's talking to with your ease and your ease it's their america right is it a different person now need a lip gloss boost in your america yeah i would say it's whoever's america it is it's the person that she's speaking to with their ease (laughs) and this is such a tory Mm, line right like a lip gloss boost and that probably always gets like a cheer from the audience too but this really to me is tory in that moment in that mustang you know her lips are dry and parched someone else would want water not tory she wants lip gloss right also to me the lip gloss she's always talked about it i see it's like i need a little boost of confidence if i'm gonna deal with you yeah you're right it's almost it's like a talent of sorts for her right and when she puts it yeah. on in concert like a secret it, weapon yeah, yeah or it's almost like war paint if i can say that oh yeah because yeah. like and when she puts it on in concert it's almost ceremonial and a lot of times it's while the band is sort of vamping and she's like getting ready to go into like a real rocking song and she's like doing her sexy sexy thing leaning on the piano and she puts her lip gloss on mm-hmm. so yeah <laughs> i feel like it sort of symbolizes some sort of ritual for her easy girls is it your sweet this line is so intimate, and to me, it changes the direction of the song entirely from what we've been talking about. So when she says, is it God's? Is it yours, sweet saliva? Seems to me like she's speaking to a lover, someone that she adores, mm. that she can't tell if the sweet saliva from the kiss is his or from God. I love How that. How do you take that line? I love that. Yeah, I was going to ask you if, because there's so many different ways to like literally read this on the page, are is it God's, is it yours, independent thoughts, and sweet saliva is almost a non sequitur, or is she actually asking uh-huh. whose saliva is it? That's how I've kind of always heard the song, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, she could also be asking whose America it is. Oh, yeah, that's true. That could be a, a tag on from the previous line. Mm-hmm. Is it God's, is it yours? Mm-hmm. Ooh, this song is so rich. <laughs> With your ease and your ease and I do one more. Back to the doing one more, which I love when someone talks about repeating something and then repeats it. Like I do one more and then, or give me more, give me more, give me more. I love that idea. I don't know what it is, but I love it. Like also when Missy Elliott says, put my thing down, flip it and reverse it. And then if you play that in reverse, it's you're afraid to take a burn yet for, and she uses that in the song. <laughs> Do you think Missy uh, Elliott used an Echoplex on Get Your Freak On? She was inspired by Tori. She fed probably. her, she sang and played it backwards. It's you're a freaking, 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 freaking. She's like, have you heard that jam, I.I.E.? Yeah, I man, that. it cooks. Fly alone, we'll die, and there's no 
To me, when I listen to this song, I'm being battered back and forth. Like, I don't know what side to be on because to me, I think it's about despair and there's a lot of grief. And then is it God's, is it your sweet saliva? I've always taken to be about a lover. And then suddenly I know we're dying. So I'm like, okay, this relationship is falling apart and there's no way out of this relationship. Like it's going to die no matter what we do. It's plummeting to the earth and there's nothing we can do to save it. There's no sign of a parachute. So I'm just like, what are we doing? Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) That's a horrible feeling to imagine yourself plummeting towards the earth with no parachute. I've been in relationships that have certainly felt that way. There's no other way to describe it. Like I know we're dying and there's no sign of a parachute. Like every interaction that you have with the other is just making it worse. You start to try to make it better and it just makes it worse. I'm wondering if this is another piece of the song that was born during that do drop in performance or that she was kind of experimenting with along with cruel that was born out of a relationship experience and kind of that material that she was processing at that time that she sort of mm. repurposed to become about something else because i certainly have never viewed IAE as about the demise of a relationship but the way you isolated those lyrics in particular i could see that having been written during the tail end of the boys for pele era and then you know we read them differently given what we know past that point yeah what we know now yeah and also like not all relationships are love relationships it must be said like it's not about necessarily about a partner like you can feel intimacy and connection with a non-partner a friend a child a parent this to me easily translates into that and obviously knowing the circumstances behind the album and the creation of the record this line to me has then taken on a completely different meaning but it's just also like this idea that your relationship is dying and you can't save it yeah there's nothing you can do to save it Um, That also takes me back to Spark and the way Tori described that feeling of this life slipping away and not being able Mm -hmm. to do anything to stop it. Yeah, and being totally powerless, even going so far as to describe her driving herself to the hospital. Because it's the only control she could have. Yeah, so I feel like this line is sort of born from that experience as well, that sense of powerlessness Mm -hmm. and not being able to stop this loss as it's happening. Wasn't there a quote about her praying in the church, in the cathedral, in the hospital? Or something about the cathedral and the hospital? That sounds right. Or like there was a prayer room or something. I want to read a little bit from Celebrity Real Life, Tori's Joy After Her Miscarriage Heartbreak. And this is from She, UK, December 2003. She says, I had my last miscarriage on November 11th, 1999. I had just finished a tour of the US with Alanis Morissette. And I was very excited because I thought everything was going to be okay with the pregnancy. I was eating really well and taking all my vitamins, but I started having problems at the end of the first three months. I did a show at the Royal Festival Hall in London. And afterwards, I just didn't feel right. So in the early hours of the morning, I went to Westminster Abbey where I lit a candle and prayed for the health of my baby. But within a few days, I started to bleed and just didn't stop. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this in terms of this line we scream in cathedrals why can't it be beautiful why does there got to be a sacrifice i think we've answered all of our questions yeah and i think Um, in a very strange way as we've sort of illustrated periodically tori has a way of sort of being precognitive tapping into things with songs before she or we have experienced them so i feel like that's a little bit of what was happening here for sure I feel like, why can't it be beautiful? Why does there got to be a sacrifice? That's kind of a more sophisticated, mature way of asking the question we all ask, but specifically when we're little kids, like, why does God let there be bad things, right? Right. 
Yeah. I think that we scream in cathedrals is the truthful thing that happened. I think that maybe when this was going on, there's always like a little cathedral in a hospital. And she talks about going to Westminster Abbey and lighting a candle in a later pregnancy. So I assume she must have done the same thing uh, yeah. for this one. So for this line, I want to read this article from She Magazine, UK, from December 2003. It's a little long, but I think it really, like, it's going to, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it after. Okay. This is from She UK, November 2003. She says, I had my first miscarriage in December 1996. I already had a name for the baby, Phoebe. I remember having a scan and the nurse was in tears. She said, I'm very, very sorry. This was three months into my pregnancy and I had suspected that something wasn't right. It finally hit home that I couldn't continue carrying this baby. When I miscarried Phoebe, I went to the outer reaches of anything that I know. I suffered so much grief. I'd dream about searching for her so that I could bring her back. I was willing to cut any deal with any God, but I know that God doesn't cut deals. I suffered my second miscarriage the following May. I don't think the pregnancy had ever really established itself because of my endometriitis and the fact that I hadn't got over the grief of losing my first baby. I hemorrhaged constantly for 27 days and I lost the baby just weeks after conceiving. That pregnancy was never as hopeful as the others. After the second miscarriage, Mark proposed and we decided to keep trying. I had my third miscarriage 18 months later, which was really devastating. I had such high hopes. I saw some of the best doctors in America, but none of them could see a reason why I couldn't stay pregnant. I was totally disheartened. Many causes for the miscarriage ran through my head. A good friend said, and it wasn't meant in an unkind way, that perhaps I ought to come to terms with the fact that I may never be able to have children. There could have been another factor. I was raped in my 20s. I thought maybe that had something to do with me not being able to carry a baby. Sometimes you don't know how these things affect you. My older sister Marie is a doctor at George Washington Hospital in Washington, D.C., and she said to me, you know, people don't know what's going on with women's bodies half the time. I think her comment helped me because then, at least physically, I felt what happened to me was beyond my control. Yet psychologically, I did start to think that perhaps these miscarriages were my trade-off in life, that perhaps I couldn't sell 15 million records and also have babies. I met women who'd given up their careers, who were financially dependent, but who had children. They saw that I could pay for my own place, have a good career and a glamorous life. They would turn to me and say, hey, there's a trade-off here. I didn't go to Paris and have lunch with my friends and go shopping and dance until 3 a.m. I had three kids. And the implication is that actually you can't have it all. I began to feel greedy. Having three miscarriages had been just too painful, so Mark and I made the difficult decision that I would go on the pill. Yet my sister talked me into trying one last time and put me in contact with a specialist in miscarriages. I went to see him just three weeks after I had lost the last baby. After the usual physical tests, the specialist suggested that I stop touring because it might help if I changed my stress pattern. I said, but this is a part of who I am. This is what I do. But he talked me into giving it a go. He put me on a baby aspirin once a day because he suspected I might be prone to blood clots and aspirin thins the blood. He told me to apply a progesterone cream if I thought I was pregnant. Progesterone is a hormone secreted by the ovaries that prepares the womb for pregnancy. We struck a deal. He said, let's just give this six months. I said, no, four. She's always wanted to strike a deal. Uh So we shook on it. If I didn't get pregnant after four months, we'd give up. Then he asked what Mark and I like to do. I said, well, we love boats and water. So he told us to get away and enjoy ourselves. And that's exactly what we did. We went to the beach house in Florida, rented a speedboat and went out on the water every day and took our minds off of things. We returned to Cornwall for Christmas and got festive, but it was a hard time. I'd had high hopes for my pregnancy. I gave away the Christmas presents that I had bought for the baby so that I could let go of the memory. In mid-January, I started to get a bad stomach. When food was cooked, maybe stomach ache, but just as bad stomach. In (laughs) mid-January, I started to get a bad stomach. When food was cooking, it smelled awful to me and wine always smelt off. One night we had people over for dinner and I was convinced the wine was corked, even though it wasn't. I called my sister and she told me to get a pregnancy test. I bought four and they were all positive. Mark and I were filled with joy, but my fear was how am I going to keep this creature alive? Three months into the pregnancy, we went back 
back to the U.S. to see the specialist in Washington again. I had an ultrasound scan. As Mark and I held hands, I saw the baby. There were two jumping, dancing legs. We were given the thumbs up. During the pregnancy, I knew things would be different. I felt a sense of calm I'd never experienced before. I felt my baby's spirit, and I knew she'd be strong. At first, I listened to everyone who thought they were a baby expert, but then sense set in. I was 36, and this was my fourth pregnancy. I decided not to read every pregnancy book from here to L.A. and back. My sister said, just welcome this. Your responsibility is to make sure that you're not putting either of you under too much stress. My sister is as tough as old boots, but she deals with women walking into her surgery and leaving knowing they have terminal cancer. She lives on a different side of warm and fuzzy. I wanted to be calm. I stopped taking calls that were stressful. I'd written a track Carnival for the soundtrack of Mission Impossible 2, and when I was four months pregnant, I was asked to fly to LA to work on it. I told those involved I'd done the track to the best of my ability and that if they could use it, great, and if not, well, I'd done the best that I could. The song did make it onto the soundtrack. When I was eight months pregnant, the specialist discovered that I was indeed prone to blood clots. I had protein S and protein C deficiency, and that could be the reason why I'd miscarried in the past. This had never been spotted before, because the levels can vary, and for every other test, my levels had been fine at the time. I had to inject a drug, heparin, in my legs twice a day for the last two months, so I had bruises all down my thighs. In September 2000, I gave birth to Natasha. It's hard to explain, but as soon as I saw her, I knew her. I felt that she pushed away the ghosts of the other three babies that I never had. Now when I look at her, I see the reason for being here. Mm-hmm. It's strange, but a friend of mine told me that I became a better friend after my miscarriages. She said that I'd always been there physically for her, but now I really listened. Maybe you have to go through tragedy to become a better person, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to try for any more children. I know when to walk away, when to run. I thank the gods every day for the opportunity to be a mother, and I think if I can be just a halfway good one, I'll be happy. But of course, I won't know if I am until I ask Natasha 20 years from now, and who knows what she'll say. Well, that date's coming up. <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? Just a few months out. Yeah. Now that we read that, with your ease and your ease, and she's talking about having endometriosis, you know, and that being a huge factor in why she can't get pregnant and like what must be on her mind. I wonder if that is anything to do with you. I'm just looking for any E words <laughs> to throw in there, but it's, maybe. It's very it's possible. A, it's possible, yeah. If you're going to write a song about endometriosis, nothing rhymes with endometriosis. No, and IIE is, you know, rolls it. off the tongue a lot better than IIE endometriosis. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> To me, this is the sister line of she's convinced she could hold back a glacier, but she couldn't keep baby alive. Yeah. She's sure that she's up to any task, but in the end, it just sets things ablaze, really ruins everything. Yeah, I agree. So we're pretty sure that Tori is the arsonist being referred to here, right? Right. And only because she's referred to herself as an arsonist hundreds of times. Yeah. (laughs) Especially around the making of the Hey Jupiter video, too. Do you remember? I do. Yeah, for sure. So what does that really mean, though? Tori is sort of acknowledging a tendency to tear things down or self-destruct or be her own worst enemy or all of those things? Yeah, I think exactly that. I don't think she means like I go out and set buildings on fire. You play with fire. You are a person who operates in destruction. Right. Yet you're intending to, or you're sure that you can save every detail. You can handle everything. Everything's going to be fine. You're in charge. You can save me. The smell of burning hair comes to me in this bridge. The little hairs on the chest are being set ablaze. 
even though you're trying to save them or you think that you can which sort of makes it an involuntary gesture i mean you are destroying everything but you're really trying to keep it all together all of that and being an arsonist or playing with fire also implies an element of risk taking right and i thought that yeah. quote the quote that you just read was so interesting when tori was so intent on being a mother and having a successful pregnancy but she was still only willing to go so far and she was negotiating with the doctor six months no four that she's always right. kind of in control, sort of rolling yeah, the you're dice right. and yeah. Like relax, let someone else be in charge for yeah, once. Right. You can't save it all. There's things that you have no control over. Yeah. I love this bridge because she's directing it herself. And I think it's sort of self-aware and almost self-critical of all those tendencies that she has. Having this conversation with you makes me have a new perspective on just say yes, which is like enough, relax, just say yes. You can't control everything. Just open yourself up to this. I agree. And that's also kind of, you use the term sister line, and I love that. This line is also a sister to, you say you don't want it, the circus we're in, but you don't really mean it. Yeah. It's like, just open yourself yeah. up to this experience, open yourself up to everything life entails, the good and the bad. And ultimately, it's all going to, let's say, temper you and make you not necessarily a better person, but maybe certainly a different person. And I think it's so interesting that her friend shared that with her and Tori had that awareness that she became a better friend. And I would guess that means a more empathetic and sort of present and caring person after having gone through this experience. So it's interesting if you do need to have sort of a tragedy to be a better person. But I think that once you have some trauma happen to you, like I do think it makes you a lot more empathetic to other people's situations, maybe. Yeah. I don't think you need to have trauma to be empathetic, but it certainly makes you more aware of people's pain. Agree. And in the song itself, you know, why can't it be beautiful? Why does there got to be a sacrifice? I feel like there's no resolution or that question isn't answered in the song, but it is in that quote that you shared. Like sometimes that's why we have to go through whatever these experiences are. And you can only see that mm -hmm. when you come out the other side. So. <laughs> What is the one more that she's doing, you think? God, that's such a good question. I've spent my life wondering what the E's are and what the E's is. I know. I've got uh, bigger problems. But... I had two E's to deal with. Yeah, Now exactly. you're giving me I've one never... more. Right. <laughs> um, I don't know what the one more is. Just my instinct is to say another poor decision or another thing that doesn't get you to anywhere. Mm. And I do one more and I do one more. And I don't know. I have no idea. What do you think the one more is? I'm sort of being influenced a little bit by the quote that we just read where she talks about having dreams about looking for the spirit of the mm -hmm. baby that she lost. And also when she talks about the dream that really inspired the song, they're going from town to town trying to save it. And by the time they got there, it was always too late. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's pretty obvious that that's kind of what she's working through. And that's what that recurring process of trying to save something and get to the next town and being too late was sort of represented for her so i think there might be a thread of that in here like i do one more i'm always a second too late but i'm going to still keep trying to hold on to this thing or do it differently next time mm -hmm. that also reminds me of the line from code red i'll do this last one and i'll grow me some wine so mm -hmm. if it's that to me is about the record label right I that, agree. That is too, I agree. This is all you get. American Doll Posse, the end. I think you're spot on. I think that if she's talking about this dream that she had that inspired the song, there's so much that we shouldn't take literally. 
especially with this song, composing from a place of that dream state or that, you know, especially if the character in the dream or the character in the vision is singing the main motif of the song to her. Yeah. I feel like there's so much that we can't make literal sense of. I think this is Paul Roy's bread and butter. <laughs> I want to go back to Code Red for a second because I totally agree with you and I think that's interesting. I do think that song is primarily or solely about the record industry and that when she says, I'll do one more, maybe that literally means I'll give you one more album and then I'm out. But I don't necessarily think that that isn't also contained here because she said that part of what she was dealing with was not being able to be a mother to a physical child at this point, but what she got instead were song girls. And maybe she's kind of pissed off about it. Like what I really wanted was to be a mother and what I get is one more album. But yeah, I guess I'll do the thing I do, which is turn my personal trauma into an album. That There's probably a lot of that in there. Because when you're feeling great pain, I think it's only instinctual to lash out at yourself in ways. Yeah. For causing whatever happened to make you feel the pain you know it's absolutely you blame yourself to this you know it's still happening it's not nothing's resolved nothing's changed in fact it feels like it's gotten worse because of the way she's holding those notes you know yeah it's really heartbreaking on the album the way she sings there's no sign of a parachute it's really kind of i don't want to say unhinged but almost um you can just really feel the grief in that performance i agree with you just the vocal for the entire song is really coded in grief yeah and here in this moment while i know we're dying when she's saying it again it seems like before the emphasis was on dying well i know we're dying and there's no sign of a parachute but now the emphasis seems to be on knowing the helplessness of knowing and the helplessness of anything you can do to save it. There's nothing Mm. you can do because she hits that I know and it's there's a little arc on that note a little bit more accentuated than before. Yeah. So it feels to me like the emphasis is on the no, just kind of like in Blood Roses. I know I've thrown away those graces. Yeah. Well, I know we're dying and there's nothing I can do. Mm. This just is testament to why I adore this woman the simple attack on a note differently it could be the same goddamn word the simple attack on it changes everything in a song I'm standing behind the fact that one of two things, there, there was some kind of chapel or cathedral or something in the hospital or something that she ran to after the miscarriage, that, there, that that's a crucial piece. But chapel, little chapel of love, usually the little chapel of love is like a marriage. She's obviously trying to link in the idea of wedding here. And then to me, it opens this idea that though their relationship is built on great love and great admiration and respect and God knows what else, memories and things like that. It also, there's a thread of that grief that they were the only two who could understand that grief and that brought them closer together. And that was this horrible thing that happened that ended up being one of the reasons they got married was because that grief brought them so close together. Well said, I totally agree with you and I think you're absolutely right. And I guess the only other thing I would add to that is up until this point, it seemed like in Tori's experience, It was always an either or. Like, I can have this or do this, but then I can't have this other thing. And she was wanting so badly to have this child, and it was eluding her. And yes, she found Mark, and yes, that experience brought them together, and they were moving towards getting married, but there was still that feeling of loss or yearning to have a child. And it's like, why is it always one or the other? Why can't it just be both? (laughs) Why can't we get grace and elegance? Why can't we have the child here with us in this moment as well? Yes. Besides just the wedding. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes it does feel like there has to be a trade-off in life, right? And that quote really resonated with me where people say, like, I couldn't do that. I went off and had kids. Yeah. I couldn't go with my friends to lunch in Paris. I went and had three kids and said, my family says shit like that to me all the time. I mean, I'm not a glamorous woman. I try to keep it on the down low. But, like, I'm living in L.A., and some people from little town New Mexico still think of that as, like, a. am not joking when I say some of my cousins have hit me up for money assuming I'm rich because I live in L.A. And yeah. their aunts, I was like, well, how much money do you think I have? They're yeah. like, well, you live in L.A. I'm like, that's why I have no money. Yeah. You do feel like it's a trade-off. Like, I do feel like it's a trade-off in my life. I don't have a house. I live in L.A. Not only that, though, but sometimes you lose perspective. And when you're sort of in grief or disappointment, you forget that a lot of other people would probably kill to be where you are and to have what you have. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's part of what she's addressing here, maybe even going back to with your ease. You know, Tori can do something that seems like magic to other people. She can, She's a musician. She can write music. She creates these albums. But what she really wants to do at this moment is to be a mother. And for whatever reason, she can't. And other people are making it look so easy. And it's the one thing mm -hmm. that she feels like she can't mm -hmm. do. So maybe that's part of the with right. your ease too. The way you make this thing that I want look so easy and you take it for granted. Yeah. You make it look so easy. You can have a child. It, like, it's no big deal to you. Yeah. It's like someone has something that you want that's no big deal to them. Yeah. And certainly not true for everyone. But in this case, I feel like I have to fight for it and you don't. Yeah. So. Yeah. like she's answering the question no we scream in cathedrals like it is a trade-off you mm -hmm. know it doesn't it's not a happy ending that the song has no we scream in cathedrals and it's clearly noted in the lyric book no we scream in cathedrals yeah at least in the promo book that i'm looking at and to me that's also saying no is the answer when you're asking can we get a yeah. little grace and some elegance no 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 you can't yeah, no we scream in cathedrals like that's what they're here for that's what we do devastating it really really is i changed my mind this is now one of my top 10 tory songs i go girl good because also i feel like at the end the way she ends it there is no resolve you just accept that it's going to be a sacrifice it's not going to be beautiful it's going you're going to be sacrificing uh, agreed like the question itself is answering the question. The answer lies mm -hmm. in the question. Mm, perhaps. And that's part of the reason why I love that big inhale at the end. It's almost like the song comes to a screeching halt mid-thought. And yeah. that there, there is no yeah. answer. There is no resolution. And it's still that... <gasps> Yeah. I don't know how to say this really, but I've, I feel like the inhale at the end is kind of like the gasping for air that must have happened in a moment of pain. Like she's vocalizing the idea of the sacrifice or the pain that the, that was the song was born from, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that that's a vocal representation of that moment of loss. Because when she, you know, the big performance on sessions where she grabs her stomach and she's you know, that moment, it feels to me like that is, she's taking us back to that exact specific moment in time. Yeah. So I kind of love that. And you know what that reminds me of too, is when she's talked about the reconditioned version of Playboy Mommy on a piano. 
similarly, she said that when she mixed it for the album, she chose to highlight certain things and downplay certain other things because she was in a very specific place emotionally and that she could only feel the sadness of it. And she couldn't kind of feel the swing and the hips of Playboy Mommy mm. until she was past mm -hmm. it. And so she chose to highlight that on the remix. And I feel like the opposite of that is true on IIE, that when the album was being mixed, she was so deep in the grief and the pain of that. And when it came to a piano, she was beyond it. So she was kind of, you know, softening the edges of that. And that included removing that inhale. I think that's exactly why. I think like all she could hear was the grief of it. Now she wants the song to operate on its own with its own rhythm rather yeah, than like right. be mired down in that grief. That could be the exact reason why she took that out. Mm -hmm. Were you shocked when you heard it for the first time on a piano? I really was because to me that is such a standout powerful moment that is literally the same thing because we're talking about a breath I guess but it would cause me to drop uh, the pile of books that I was holding because I guess that's what I do when I listen to an album if I was listening to winter <laughs> if I was listening to winter and she took out the <sighs> before the last one you're gonna make up your mind I'd be like what <laughs> where's my <laughs> breath yeah I was where's shocked my breath give me my breath Tori Allen what's your favorite lyrical moment Oh boy. My favorite lyrical moment, I guess, would have to be, I know we're dying and there's no sign of a parachute. We scream in cathedrals. Why can't it be beautiful? Again, sort of like I said, that's a more sophisticated way of asking that question that we always ask, why is this happening? Or why mm -hmm. is God or whoever letting this happen? But sometimes that's all we can ask. And it's such a basic question, but it's like, I don't see the master plan in this. I don't see the sense in this. I don't see any good coming from this. Why is this necessary? How about you? Well said. This song is so hard for me to pick out my favorite lyric specifically, because I just think this song operates as a whole so beautifully. And this sort of stream of conscious writing that it's not worried about making sense, you know, because there's such a potency with her, with the first line, with your ease and your ease and I do one more that will never penetrate. And I love that. I love that she is holding back. Like we, she's not being so clear. It's clearly so important to her, but we'll never know. And I love her holding that back in the lyric, yet being so poetic about it. I think the song is so poetic, but I think probably I'm gonna have to say my favorite lyric is in this chapel, little chapel of love. Can't we get a little grace and some elegance? Mm -hmm. I fucking love that. I wouldn't love it as much if she hadn't thrown in little chapel of love because in this chapel little chapel of love i don't know there's something so hungry for peace and hungry for grace and elegance obviously but hungry for just a calm and so hurt that she can't achieve it i mm. love it yeah agreed what's your favorite vocal moment is this a gasp at yeah, the end? Yeah, does that count? Because if it does, then for yeah, sure. Yeah, of course it does. But also, yeah. I don't even want to say second runner-up because they're about on par. But the delivery of I Know We're Dying and There's No Sign of a Parachute the second time when it is so desperate and raw, it really breaks my heart every time I listen to it. It doesn't matter how many times I've heard it. Mm -hmm. When you listen to the vocals here, like the actual vocal performance here, it to me is so thick with, you know, she talks about when she was recording Strange Fruit, how she had to wake up early in the morning morning and get that yeah. raspy quality to her voice to convey like a certain emotion. I feel that here. I feel like there's such, especially at the end, um, and especially in the part that you mentioned, it's so thick with grief. I feel like she's either going to sing or bawl. Like she's going to just be completely devastated in tears yeah. or be singing this song or both. And I feel like there's something about her vocal performance at the end that signals to me like she's got tears in her eyes and she's just like singing her heart out and like screaming to the gods for answers 
that it's so wild and it's so uninhibited. I adore it. Yeah, and it's not quite as raw, but it takes on the same pitch almost as when she would launch in kind of the repeat of Wash Me Clean during Precious Things yeah. on the Do Drop In tour when it gets mm-hmm. really high pitched and almost breaks and it's just almost like I'm almost too overwhelmed to be able to listen to it. <laughs> Agreed. Ugh. Stella, another Stella performance, Toriums. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite musical moment? Okay, part of me wants to say that it's when the bridge explodes and that is definitely a moment. It's a thing. It goes from zero to a hundred instantly and I love it. And I, she's never been more rock and roll, right? Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, you feel pyrotechnics shooting up in the air. Like you, yeah, that is a that is a moment. <laughs> and I liked how you described it earlier as like no matter what system you put it on, it's like aching to burst through that system. It's yeah. like it can hardly be contained. But for me, it's the come down from that. And everything has been sort of stripped out. Yeah, and there's also that low, almost like sonic blast under it too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't need to add anything else because that's my favorite musical moment as well. And I think you described it beautifully. But because I feel the need to keep adding runner-ups, I'm going to say I also just love the tiny inclusion of the piano right before I need a lip gloss Oh, boost. yeah. Need a lip. I love that. Bing, bing, boom, boom. And I will say that is the one thing that I appreciate about the reconditioned version on a piano is that the piano is bumped there and it's a lot more clear. And I just love it because it's powerful. It's like, yeah, hit the low yeah. notes on that boozy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also like the everything the Echoplex is bringing to it because we never see it again. This is unique in that way. And that as a musical experimentation or as a you know a musical decision made by the band or the producer i think that's a great moment and yeah having that on the loop as kind of a loop throughout the song is really really great it's the backbone of the song you know you know so, if tori can if tori can travel with the leslie cabinet for horses she can certainly travel with an echoplex and if she continues to tour as a solo artist and wants to sort of expand her capabilities maybe she should do that maybe she should build her own vocal loops on stage and accompany herself God, I would love that. I would love that. It worked for what's his name? What was the opener? Howie Day. You Thank mean Howie you. Day? Yes. It Howie worked. Day, who stole that move from Joseph Arthur, who at that time that Howie Day was touring with Tori Amos, Joseph Arthur was the only person going around with those pedals that he had designed, which Howie Day purchased at Guitar Center and then used on stage. Right. So it was a Joseph Arthur thing. Joseph Arthur's been doing that <laughs> since at least 1996. I know. And I know that story. And I know that you're very passionate about that. So I'm glad you got the chance to make that clear on the air. But yeah, I did not think that Howie Day originated that concept or created that and technology. To be fair, but... hundreds of other people have done it as well, like thousands of musicians at this point. So right. it's not just Howie Day stealing from Joseph Arthur, but everybody in the world. Right. Anyway, take that idea, Tori, and run with it. Another musical moment I want to talk about is let's kind of differentiate these instruments. So I feel like what's going through the echoplex is that bass along with does that make sense yep it does actually (laughs) like this part i didn't know you could beatbox roll it ollie but i love what i assume is the electric hank because it sounds kind of country to me but it's electric Mm -hmm. is this part right here this is also a really stellar musical moment for me in this song which she seemed to love so much because she would like pull from the audience that energy during that time. Like she would like dance with her little thumbs, you know? 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Thank goodness she wasn't asking everyone to sort of recreate it vocally and chime in with bow, 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 bow. or asking people to dance back like she forced us to do at Storytellers. Oh my goodness. Get off your asses. How dare you, ma'am? You have spent your whole career telling us to sit down and shut up at your shows. <laughs> you want us to stand and dance like we've been training for this? Which one is it? You're not a jukebox. I'm not a puppet. <laughs> Good. Let's listen to Yanta's cover. Now, this is different. Yanta did a string arrangement of this song, which is different than his piano cover. So we're just going to play it here. We're not going to talk over it. We're not going to explore it because it's Yanta just being free. Let, let the man be free. I love Yanta so much. Always the overachiever, that Yanta. And in this case, he's like, oh, Tora, you didn't have time to work out a quartet arrangement of IE for Night of Hunters? No problem. I got that covered for you. Here you go. Oh, Yanta. Always giving so much. Please support Yanta at patreon.com slash Yanta. And here's his string arrangement of I, 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 Michael. Hi. Where does IIE rank in your choir girl hotel? Okay, I love all my choir girls equally, and I really do. But gun to my hot little head, it's kind of fighting for last place with Pandora for me. What makes IIE unique for you in Tori's catalog? The kind of sultry little like bongo-ness of that intro is a left turn. Where would be the best place in the world to listen to IIE? It's a bonfire song for me. Kind of smelling the wood burning, but it's gotta be hot out. It's a summer song, but like still in the woods. 
Is there a place or a time where you'd never consider listening to IIE? Where <laughs> I'd never consider? Yeah, like, what's, that's, a, that's a nice question. Of like, where, where would it be completely inappropriate to listen to this song? <laughs> uh, like, your neighbor's apartment is on fire, and you're standing there singing, just say yes. <laughs> if the song was spelled the same, but not pronounced IIE, how would you pronounce it? I. <laughs> For this, we're going to ask you to use your skills of onomatopoeia. Please describe IIE in three other sounds. <laughs> this is so hard because how do I not use those two vowels? That feels like the challenge. Arrow is one. Oh, fuck. Ah, is a second. <laughs> I have no onomatopoeia skills. I'm been exposed. This is my karma for, for trying to drag IE on a <laughs> Where would be I the... I feel like it's missing. <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> what defines grace and elegance to you? The key is an effortlessness. I want to come into your bathroom. I want to see there the nicest hand soap and feel that detail. That is the kind of elegance that I want. Grace, I feel like, is something different. To be gracious is to, like, be willing to yield, you know? Yeah. Did you hear about the hot arsonist I invited over last night? No, tell me. Yeah, the room just lit up when he walked in. I bet. I think even the ugliest arsonist can light up my room at this point. Same. But he was just here to burn calories. Oh, God, yeah. Pound him out. Unfortunately, we weren't a match. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) If you could share IIE with anyone in the world, who would you share it with and why? I don't know if I would share it with them particularly, but, like, there's a certain feeling you get with religious grandparents and parents or just, like, religious adherents in your life. The song kind of hints at this particular feeling of like, it's the shouting in cathedral. Um, But it's like this kind of futility of this where you just want to shake them up and say like, look at what's happening in the world. Like question your choices, you know? That was Michael Carley. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Carley, C-A-R-L-I. And now on the line, we have Natalie Lodico Bond. She's an artist and photographer from Midland, Michigan. She is a supporter of the show, and she's here to talk about her adoring love for IIE. Hi, Natalie. Hi, it's so good to talk to you. <laughs> so it's this is the most exciting thing to happen to me in quarantine, getting to talk to you. Oh, so. yay. Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and to talk about your favorite song. Yes. Well, tell us your Tory story. Start there. Okay, so... So I was homeschooled. Uh, We have a really good library in town. And I was always making mixtapes with like the CDs, borrowing them. And then they had a couple Tory things and I hadn't, I didn't even check them out. But my cousin had little earthquakes and I read through all of the lyrics and I was like, this woman is brilliant. And for some reason, the only thing I recorded was China because I felt like I couldn't record the whole CD. That would be illegal. (laughs) Right. But like one song is fine. It's like the single from the radio. I don't know. Ethics. Um, So... I listened to it obsessively, and then the internet started functioning more like it does today, and I went to her website, and she had all of her videos streaming on a loop. Mm-hmm. Then I listened to that ad nauseum, and I finally got like the CDs at the library. I did interlibrary loans. I joined BMG and got all of the discs. You know, I lived at the Dent, and I lived at Tory Lyrics, and like if you had a webpage for Tory in the late 90s, I was probably there. So. Right. Right. Did you have your own webpage? Uh, no, I did have an Angel Fire site for my uh, poetry. Oh. 
Yeah, and I put the little dancing Tories from here in my head at the bottom just for my allegiance. Do, do but... you remember? I've been waiting for someone who remembers like these old Tory sites. Do you remember the Tory ring where you would like click yes. the Tory ring and be sent to a completely different website? It's like, oh. And then there were like competing ones, and I was like, I don't want to know what the drama is about yeah. this, guys. Yeah, oh yeah. There's always been drama in the Tory community. <laughs> okay, so how did you discover IIE, and what about that song? What about Choir Girl? So I had really debilitating Lyme disease as a teenager, like to the extent where I almost lost the ability to walk. Um, I think most people that are drawn to Tory tend to be more empathic anyway, but I was like, you know, the deep person in my friend group, the one who thought about everything and of course was contemplating a life possibly being disabled. So um, it was hard to find people who got that kind of thing at 15 or 16 or 17. Um, and I got Choir Girl from Interlibrary Loan and I put it on. It was the first time where like immediately it was like I was transported to, I was transported to her hotel, whatever that hmm. meant, sonically. And I just felt by the end of Spark, I was like, oh, she understands what it is, like on her level, you know, not exactly what I'm feeling, but she gets the depth of what I'm feeling. And then when IAE came on, I think I just froze. It was like, I mean, the lyrics don't make sense and her story almost doesn't that makes sense, except that she's talking about it just being about just raw, untangible pain that's so much bigger than her. I mean, I've been thinking all day, like, what, what is it? I don't even know if I have words still. Like, it just, it's like it filled my body and I was like, it's going to be okay because this crazy person gets my crazy. Have you ever seen it live? Have you ever seen her do it live? Yes. So my freshman year in college, I found someone else who was actually talking to you earlier today, my friend Jonathan Kruger. And um, he was like, we're going to go see Tori together because no one else loved Tori. We were like the two Tori people. But I just, I was praying the whole time that she would play. What show was this? It was, oh, sorry. In um, Scarlet's Walk at the Ryman oh, in Nashville. Okay. It was amazing. The Ryman's, the acoustics are so, we were in the balcony and it was still like, the acoustics were just so good. Um, and she talked about like feeling, you know, how it had been a brothel and then it was a church and mm -hmm. then it was the Grand Ole Opry and all of the threads. And she played IE and Hotel and I just, I couldn't move. Yeah. What a great tour, huh? <laughs> it was, yeah. Oh. I mean, I wish I could have afforded to go to more. I was just a poor freshman, but I followed everything on the dent too and read all of the playlists and downloaded all of the bootlegs. But Well, what's your favorite lyrical moment in IIE and why? Okay, so in my journal, when I was like 17, I wrote out all the lyrics. I think the thing that resonated with me with the most is when she says, why can't it be beautiful? Because I think that that was something that I came to, like, I'm a, I don't know if you've heard of the Enneagram, but I'm definitely a four on there, which mm -hmm. means like someone who's really motivated by beauty. And I just felt like with the little energy that I'd have every day, I just wanted to create something beautiful and I don't know it's like I know we're dying but why can't it be beautiful I don't know that's just screaming in cathedrals which are like these beautiful places that sometimes really alienate people sometimes really connect people trying to make the pain beautiful despite yeah. it being yeah I love that I love that and what's your favorite vocal moment probably when she says I know we're dying mm -hmm. I mean the whole thing is tremendous but that moment where you hear her voice almost break with the emotion of it it's just I can't not be present with it, even if I'm not completely paying attention and it's just playing. I, I always kind of still at that moment. Right. Huge, huge fan of this song. I knew that I was going to, when you talked about that early on in the podcast, I was like, I can trust this person. Good taste. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anything else you'd like to tell us about your love for this song? 
well, I guess building off of what I just said, so many people don't understand it because it just seems like a nonsense song, almost like Mr. Zebra, except it's really serious. And I love how she uses words. I think Kurt Cobain did the same thing where he would do impressionistic lyrics. And, you know, she always talks about how it doesn't matter what I'm singing. You feel what I mean. When someone reacted to the lyrics being weird, I would be nice, but I knew that they didn't get it. Like they weren't um, plugged into that, whatever the sonic thread that Tori was trying to reach out to people. So mm-hmm. it's one of those, you know, I can love you if you don't like IE, but if, when I know you like IE, it's like, there's something there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are kindred. <laughs> right. Natalie Lodico Bond, you can find her on Instagram at photo Lodico. That's P-H-O-T-O and Lodico like L-O-D-I-C-O. She's an artist and photographer from Michigan. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah. And if you send me a message on Instagram, I will for sure follow you back. And we need more Tory people. So done thank you so done. much. Everybody, she needs more Tory in her life. Follow her. <laughs> this is the Montaz remix of IIE. I found it on SoundCloud. And I'm going to link to it in the show notes at songsoftoryamus.com. We have David Keith Alexander. He is a gardener from Central North Carolina, right outside of Chapel Hill. Hi, David Keith. Hi there. How are you? I'm well. You're a super fan of IIE, too. I forgot to mention, but everyone knows. We're all super fans of IIE. Yeah, it's one of those pivotal songs. Yeah. Um, It's just one of those songs that when you first got Choir Girl, you go, oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is new territory. Exactly. It stops you, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so what is your Tory story? How did you come into the fold? Really quickly, I discovered Tory with Little Earthquakes. And this was in 93, right before Under the Pink came out. And it was over at a friend's house at a pool party. And when I heard Crucify, that did it. That did it. And so I gratefully got to go chronologically with the albums. And despite my religious upbringing, I was able to still attend some shows, you know, despite my parents' wishes. And being able to go to the live shows and go to the meet and greets and follow her throughout her career has just been one of the greatest gifts for me. Oh, that's great. I love going against parents' wishes to get to Tori. Yeah. Back then, she pushed buttons. She was very left, you know, and I love that parents were up in arms about her. Yeah. For my folks, it was the fact that there was a track called Father Lucifer. That yeah. just threw them over the edge. Great. I love it. She's subversive. <laughs> okay, so how did you discover IIE and what brought you to that song as being your signature song? First, it was 
May the 5th when I first heard it in 98. And that new sound, that new sound and the rhythm and all the new sounds that she was throwing at us. I don't know, it hit me in my gut. And you know, I was listening to this song going down the road the other day and I, I felt the agony that goes on in this song. And you know, my palms got sweaty and I felt it. That was a moment in 98 where I don't, necessarily understand what she was going through at that time but i knew that this was pivotal for her and it just really stuck out to me and i've always just just really grouped with that rhythm talk more about the agony in the song because there is unmistakable pain in the song i would love to explore that topic of what you think the song is about and where you think the song comes from as a super fan of the song i don't know where tori was when this song first started coming to her but just having known some of the stories she's told about her miscarriages this was a point where she's really challenging god and really going after god why do we have why can't it be easy why can't life be easier it's hard enough as it is and we're trying the best that we can and why is this happening when i'm doing everything i possibly can to make it as good as it can be why are you why are you taking this from me i don't know where she was but i know that she was at her lowest at that time even lower than you know what we saw on pele with hey jupiter and you know when you listen to hey jupiter that's a really mournful song, and it's just a cry. But this is an even deeper cry to me. It's more than a relationship being over. It's losing your baby. Yeah. yeah. That's also the moral of the story for me here is that she's confronting this. She isn't running away from it. She's confronting God. She's confronting her own pain and the why that she's feeling. I love it when Tori said uh, way back in the day on, on MTV, you know, she's telling the story. Her father is telling her to gird her loins. And really, it means different things to me. But she's girding her loins here. And she's really putting on her metal and going after the deity, going after her own pain and addressing it in this. It's marvelous to yeah. me. I love that imagery, like putting on her armor. Yeah. Um, have you seen her live? Have you seen her do this live? Yeah. Um, the last time was in Durham. 2017? It was 2017. Do you have any people in your life that you share Tori with? I do. Uh, you know, I have a friend that lives out in L.A., a lifelong actress. Again, she was the one who said, Keith, you've just really got to listen to this record. Her name's Beth. She's just one of the dearest friends I've ever had to this day. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you have somebody to share that with and that IIE means so much to you. Do you have anything else you'd like to say about IIE? This is just a song that has been a light to me when I felt really, really low, when I need a boost, when I need to get through a really dark moment, when I'm not at my best, whether it be something that I feel that's been out of my hands, like this was for Tori, or if it's something that I'm causing in a relationship or a circumstance with myself and the anger or the why, why am I encountering this? Why am I going through this? Mm -hmm. Tori was never a victim. She has never been a victim in any circumstance, but she is not afraid to ask why. Why is this happening to me? And this song has been helpful to me sometimes because I have to ask myself, why am I going through this? Is this something that I'm responsible for? And it's just a track that has helped me get through some really dark things. Mm -hmm. I love that you say that because that is 
100% true, I believe. She's not a victim, but she's not afraid to explore the reasons that she's causing things to happen or what it is that she's attracting to herself and, and exploring it from right. that perspective. And I think that that is the power of her music and across the board, all her music, that that's where the power is, is in that exploration of self and the determination to know all sides of yourself, to be a healthier Com- more complete person for it. And I, I'm glad that you touched on that here. Please tell everyone where they can find you on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at jardinage. And that is a French word for gardener, right? <laughs> well, it is. It's J-A-R-D-I-N-A-G-E-R. I was like, is it jardinager? That's how not French I am. <laughs> My pronunciation is terrible. My husband is half French. I'll say uh, he, he's uh, got a master's degree. He's all the time correcting my pronunciation, <laughs> and I'm all the time butchering it. I do have to take you to task for something, David Keith Alexander, because you said <laughs> that we often, our interpretations have you screaming, no, in the car. Is there any one particular you would like to address? Um, no. No. <laughs> I- <laughs> I, I love you guys so much. I, w- I would never call you to task on tape. No. Well, well, feel always feel free to reach out and just say and give us your thoughts because we do. A, that's the reason we do the wrap up episode because I know there's no way in the world that David and I can cover everyone's thoughts on everything. Every, it's so open, you know. No. So if you ever right. have a thought on it, just email us and we'll read it on the wrap up episode. Okay. Thank you. You got it. All right, everybody, follow David Keith Alexander on. Instagram at Jardinager, which we'll, of course, link to on our show notes page, songsoftoriamus.com. It was lovely to chat with you, and thank you so much for supporting our show. Thank you. And a thanks to Natalie Ladico Bond as well for supporting our show, and to everybody out there, all our Patreon supporters for supporting our show. Remember, you can always leave a message on our voicemail, 323-296-9955. If you want to be on the show, email us, songsoftoriamus at gmail.com. Let us know. We're pretty much booked up for Choir Girl season, but we may be able to squeeze you in. This is Daryl Banner with a 16-bit cover of IIE, and we'll be back with our live section. We've made it to the live section, David. I am even more excited than I usually am, if you can believe it, because these are some of our favorite live performances of all time. Including some of our favorite promo performances of all time. Yes. Tori Amos has performed IIE a total of 254 times throughout her career Mm. in, in a live concert setting. 
Isn't that exciting? That's like a over 250 times. That's a big deal. That is a big deal, but I seem to recall that they were grouped in large bunches and then it would take a long break. So it's going to be interesting to kind of dive yeah. into that. This is definitely one of those songs that she plays a lot and then just stops playing suddenly and for a long time. Yes, <laughs> for sure. And then it comes screaming back with a vengeance. Right. It's like she's saying, you can't have too much of a good thing. Like here's a lot of a good thing and then none of a good thing. Yeah. And I also think that this is one of the few songs that is influenced by what's going on in the world and there are times when she's just not feeling it or it doesn't seem appropriate or of the moment and then you know depending on what's going on politically or whatever else then it's very very present for her so i think it's also kind of shifted meaning over time oh definitely Okay, let's start in 1996, and we do not count this, but we have to talk about it. We played it earlier, the sound check from Boston, Massachusetts, September 1996. Mm -hmm. But in 1998, when she debuted the full band arrangement live, she performed this song 116 times in 1998. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Mm -hmm. It came right out the gate, too. It was right out on that first show, one of the first ones she arranged, I'm sure. Yeah, and it sure was very present from the get go and you know you and I watched that show not too long ago and I was surprised how fully formed and polished it was already including the bridge breakdown and all of that like they were on it mm-hmm yeah the, especially the bridge breakdown you we kind of have this collective memory that that evolved over time you know yeah but going back to the very first time she played it it's remarkable how worked up it was already yeah for sure it really was kind of it didn't change that much if anything maybe the the kind of final then why why's at the end became more desperate other than that it was pretty locked in this is april 18th 1998 in fort lauderdale florida at the chili pepper the first time she ever played it Chili Pepper was red hot. <laughs> Some other notable performances in 1998, since there are so many. Let's just go through the notable performances. Okay. Performances of note. This is April 26th, 1998 in Philadelphia. <laughs> This is June 8th, 1998 in Berlin. I just love this breakdown. I 
This is about a month later, July 5th in Workter. October 24th, 1998, she performed this song on VH1 Storytellers, but she performed it without the bridge. I think for the only time, right? The only time that tour. Yeah. Do we know for a fact that she performed it without the bridge and it wasn't just edited out for length? I guess we don't know that. Mm. Oh my God, you've blown my mind. (laughs) And I'm going to even take it one step further because what if the original track was recorded with the breakdown in the middle and they edited out for length on the album? November 14th, 1998, she performed this song in perhaps what is the most iconic of all of Tori Amos' performances from the 90s. It is her performing IIE at Sessions. Wouldn't you agree? I would. And we need to start playing Drive All Night Bingo. And the word iconic is going to be on the card for sure. <laughs> well, this is perhaps the most iconic live moment of the 90s. Uh-huh. And no, I'm talking would... the entire 90s. Any artist. <laughs> I don't disagree. But I do think that I like the idea of bingo. I think that sounds fun. And since the listeners know our ticks more than we do, David, I think if you are a frequent listener and you wanted to sign a bingo card for us, hit us up at songsoftoriamus at gmail.com. Let's play bingo!
that just goes back to what I was saying earlier. When I heard this version, I understood the song instantly. I understood grief. I knew the world. And I have a very specific story about sessions at West 54th that no one ever believes that I'm going to tell again that... I hope you'll indulge me. All right, I'm going to light the campfire and get my cider ready for story time. Go for it. So in its first airing on PBS, I was living in Albuquerque, and I was young. You know, I worked at a theater called the Vortex Theater, and I was the light board operator for a show called Joe Turner Has Come and Gone. And I was not supposed to be the light board operator on this show. I got called in. So I really just ran the board. I didn't know the show. I didn't know the people. And that's important. But I was there for the cast party after the last show. And this goes back to how naive I was, okay? I always talk about my naivete when I was young. But (laughs) after the show, after the, the cast party, someone mentioned the night before to the director about the cast party the next night. Ooh, will you be bringing your special brownies? And she was like, absolutely. Well, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't even clock it until later. So there I am at the cast party, young, naive, chubbo. And I'm like... Ooh, brownies. And I had so many fucking brownies. David, I can't even tell you how many I had. I had three or four brownies, at least. Turns out they were laced with marijuana. Shocked to no one but me. And I'm suddenly very, very, very stoned. I have two questions already. Yes. Why did no one stop you? Because I didn't have friends there. I didn't know anybody. I was just like sitting by the food table. And are you absolutely sure they weren't just really good brownies? <laughs> well, I guess I'm not. But like, I suddenly felt very strange. I never smoked pot. So I never like, I didn't know the feeling, but I suddenly felt very, very strange. I was like, I have to get home right now. So I was on a bike. I didn't even drive. I had my bike <laughs> and I rode my bike home and it was a wild ride. I rode my bike home and I sat in my living room. I was so high, so so high. Cut to like a half hour later, I'm at home trying to watch TV and I turn to MTV and like I'm just kind of floating through the channels. And this is the part that no one believes, but I swear to God is true. I was floating through the channels and I was so, like, my hands were heavy and I was just like, I ended up on some channel that had just snow on it. Like there was a picture or something and then the picture went out and it was just snow, you know, like, you know, like that kind of snow, TV snow. Mm-hmm. I was too high to change the channel to pick the remote back up or whatever it was so i just kind of was staring at the snow oh, high that is high. <laughs> watching the television and all of a sudden tori amos appears in the middle of precious things on the session's performance i ended up on pbs or something and it just happened and i ended up with this random tori concert that i didn't know i didn't at the time we i didn't have like the schedule of tapings or anything like that i didn't know that it was coming i had no idea and i was like what is this i always felt like it was a gift from the heavens to me in that moment because i was also a little like freaked out because i didn't i still didn't know what pot brownies were and i still didn't know that the feeling that i was having was caused from the brownies do you understand i was like very (laughs) freaked out but yeah it was like a gift from the heavens I don't know why people wouldn't believe that. I think it's happened to all of us in some way or another, and it's happened to you at least twice. Once in a while, when you need it most, Tori reaches a hand across the universe. It happened to you when you were in that gay bar and you heard Raspberry Swirl? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, Uh. why not? Why wouldn't Tori come screaming through the TV like Carol Ann and Poltergeist when you were in a moment of need? (laughs) Yeah, but here's the thing that was so insane about it was that it was a whole concert that I was not expecting, and it was a great 
concert. I don't know. Do you ever feel like when you hear Tori out in the public that do you feel exposed? I do, but I also get really excited. So it's, you know, that push-pull of feeling exposed, but also wanting to draw attention to it. I was shopping at Trader Joe's last Christmas time, and I heard pink and glitter, and I wanted to run around shaking people by the shoulders. Like, do you know what's happening right now? This is so strange. Shower the world, people. Come on. <laughs> this is Tori Amos performing IIE in Lowell, Massachusetts on November 17th. This is an interesting performance because she cuts the bridge as played normally, and she adds Band on the Run, which is a song by Paul McCartney and Wings. Mm. Do you remember that TV show Wings, that sitcom? Oh, of course I do. Steven Weber? <laughs> Crystal Bernard? Yeah, that. Yeah, Crystal Bernard. That's what I, who I imagine sings the original. Yeah. <laughs> time she performed IIE on the 98 tour. This is December 3rd, 1998 in East Lansing and the last show of the tour. Mm -hmm. I was there and it's also my parents' wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary, mom and dad. How did you feel about this song in the 98 tour? It was a real moment of every show. That and Precious Things, I think, never disappointed. And cruel. That's true. Yeah, also cruel. But there was something about that bridge of IE specifically that's and just waitress. so... <laughs> <laughs> and waitress. And raspberry swirl. Right. Nothing disappointed in 98. Nothing. God. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a top tier <laughs> band arrangement song for sure. No question. Should we move to the 99 tour? Yeah. Tour. She performed 
IIE six times in 99, <laughs> which was a smaller tour, you know, but a little less than always. <laughs> yeah, but I was at the first five or six shows of that tour, and it was interesting because it really did feel like a direct continuation of Plugged because it hadn't been that long. It was less than a year since the Plugged tour ended. A lot of the arrangements were the same, Waitress was the same, and she threw in kind of Blood Roses and God, but out of the gate, she wasn't really yeah. even playing any songs from Venus except for Bliss because the album wasn't out yet. So it was like we hadn't skipped a beat. Why did she do that? Why did she not play Venus songs? Why did she not ever play new stuff in advance of the record? Tori, why are you like this? I mean, I think that's kind of, I'll say, respectful maybe of her fan base. And she doesn't want to play new songs that people aren't familiar with. Or in her words, she'd probably say she wants to give people a chance to develop their own relationship with a girl or something before she plays them live. So I don't know. I think she just doesn't want them to circulate on the bootlegs before they circulate on the records. Maybe. That's a way to spin it. I was painting her as generous and now (laughs) you're painting her as stingy. (laughs) Stingy, give us the new stuff. Uh, But I do think that, you know, when she started the tour in her mind, that's kind of how she was approaching it as like a continuation of Plugged, especially because she was also promoting that live album. But a lot of those songs like IAE and she did Cruel a couple times too and then they totally disappeared. So I think she just needed a break. She Mm -hmm. was like, oh, I haven't had enough time away from these songs. So they got dropped pretty quickly. I agree. I think she needed a break and like they were staples on the last tour. You know, they were staples on the 98 tour. So she might have felt a little played out. Yeah. Especially because those two songs in particular, IIE and Cruel, take so much out of her. Like they have these extended bridges where she's just like calling the heavens. This like maniacal cry in both of those songs. And then she's adding Blood Roses, which also has that as well. And then she's adding Professional Widow, which is also like really high octane. So you can't do that four times in a show. Something's got to go. I love that description. Professional Widow is nothing if not a high octane thriller. I, yeah. w- <laughs> Thank I you. wonder, I wonder too, if she was factoring in that she was also playing to the Alanis audience and that kind of, mm. kind of deeper cut like an IAE or a Cruel with those extended bridges might have seemed a little self-indulgent for a wider audience like that. So she was trying to keep it toit maybe and do like more accessible songs and not have the, these extended jams. If she felt she might lose the people who weren't there specifically to see her. That might be accurate as well. And considering that in relation to the Blood Roses extended jam, at least that one felt really new. Like she was developing something, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why that one stuck around. I can see that. This is the first time she did it in 1999. This is August 18th in Fort Lauderdale. Again, IIE. first time she did it on the extended part of the tour to Dallas and back. I love this performance and I loved this show. This is September 29th, 1999 in Dallas. This is when she was to Dallas, but not back. She never went back. She never went back. Not on that tour. False advertising, right? Yeah. If I lived in Dallas, I would be pissed. Totally. She said she would come back.
convinced in that performance and no one can tell me different that she says, I know you understand, understand the way I feel. You hurt yourself today. That's what I think she says. Listen again. This is the last time she performed it with the band in the current iteration with Katen, with uh, that extended bridge. It's the very last time. And it was Salt Lake City, Utah on October 10th, dying no sign well then iie did something unforgivable took a vacation yeah took a tour off (laughs) maybe it went on a little walkabout in the desert it took a tour off and lost its bridge rented a mustang yeah (laughs) took a tour off and lost its bridge came back bridgeless left its bridge at rooster spur oh damn mystery solved she thought she was over the bridge now turns out she was let's go to scarlet's walk on Scarlet's Walk in 2002-2003, Tori must perform this song 62 times. Mm. Now, why do you think that was? Well, first of all, let's be very clear about IIE and why I'm pissed off at it. I think she knows, but okay. Well, at least why, <laughs> why she I was knows pissed. what yeah, she, she knows. did. Why I was pissed off at it in 2003 anyway is because I did the whole first leg. Uh, basically of Scarlet's Walk from November 7th to the end basically I was in and out but I did a ton of shows and she didn't do IIE in that first leg at all but then the second leg began in January in the UK and she started performing IIE and I was so upset (laughs) because I couldn't go god Mm. so you felt attacked you thought it was was personal she was holding back on IIE until you weren't there no I felt like okay she's getting comfortable with the band and she's keeping the second leg fresh and adding new songs and stuff. I just was upset about not hearing it. Yeah. But you got to eventually, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't the it same. It hurt any less. <laughs> this is IIE on February 20th, 2003, the first time she performed it in the States with the jazz combo, and it was Boca Raton, Florida at Misner Park Amphitheater. Here we go. 
Yeah, missing the guitar, huh? Yeah. Thoughts? I certainly miss Caden, and, you know, depending on the day, I still do, but I think this jazz trio did a really good job of filling in that space and coming up with interesting new arrangements, particularly for um, these Choir Girl era songs. For me, it didn't slap as hard, but neither did she. You know, she changed a little bit there, and she was a little bit more motherly and a bit more sensual and a bit more of the earth. She sure was. she wasn't slapping so hard anyway. That sage was burning. She was smoking, not slapping. And I do believe it's like a successful transition of a song from the Choir Girl era into her new motherly face, you know, into her Scarlet's Walker. Yeah. It makes sense that she would try to rearrange some of these songs to make them more consistent with her sound at the time and also to sit better with the scarlet era song so yeah you couldn't go crazy on an iie after you've just done i can't see new york you know no it just doesn't and something like a cruel would have stuck out like a sore thumb too so for sure this is nashville tennessee february 23rd 2003 This is the first time I heard it with a new arrangement. This is Albuquerque 2003, one of the best shows of all time. This is the last time she would perform it on this tour. This was New Orleans, Louisiana, at the end of the second leg, April 29th, 2003, in another amazing show.
believe that, or at least I have to believe, that this song came screaming back because we were post 9-11 and that kind of the themes of loss and asking why do things like this have to happen and where does this leave us and what does it mean to be an American? The questions that she was asking with the Scarlet album, I think this song was really relevant. So Mm -hmm. I have to believe that that's why it became a staple on this tour after taking a break for so long and it took on new meaning for her that was more, let's say, global or political as opposed to personal. I agree with that. It's like when she was talking about in her book Resistance about how girl took on like a she's been everybody else's girl about America. It's kind of that same idea. I will say I'm pretty pleased to read that because during the live section of Girl, when we got to Native Invader, that was kind of our theory. And she confirmed that for us in her oh, book. Oh, did we so, say that? Thank yeah, God. Yeah, we did. We Thank did. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> did you think she took that from us? Yes. You yes, think she I heard do. that episode? She was like, oh, that's good. That I, is good. I do. And she wrote it down. Yep. She pulled the pen out from behind her ear and she was like, I'm going to put that in. She's like, Johnny, bring me the manuscript. Yeah. I, I, and a pen. I yeah. need a pen. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. Then I got pissed off at IIE again. Maybe you guys should just break up. You fight too much. This on again, off again thing, IIE, we got to get it together. Totally. She took 2005 (laughs) completely off. Can you believe that? Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I can. I don't know how it would have gone fully (laughs) solo on the organ, but... But I would have loved to hear it. Yeah. There's a review on the dent from Jen of the Sirius XM radio performance on August 24th, 2005. I guess Jen asked for IIE and Tori mentioned that she doesn't want to try to translate songs that are, quote, more about technology Mm. to the piano for her live tour. In particular, she said IIE because they intimidate her and because the songs tell her not to go there. Hand up from IIE. (laughs) Don't go there. Don't go there, girl. (laughs) (laughs) We know this is Tori's pat answer when someone asks her to play a song that she just doesn't want to play. She always blames it on issues of technology. She will say anything. (laughs) Let us revisit Voodoo Gate from 98 where people were asking for (laughs) the springtime of his voodoo on the plug tour and she was like, oh, I can't do it. I don't have the harpsichord with me. And we were like, um, did you ever play it on the harpsichord, Tori? That is code for (laughs) no. Don't feel like it. NTY. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, IIE continued to take a vacay. She took 2007, 2009, 2010, 2011, and 2012 off. Oh, uh, we were starting to lose hope. I know. That's actually very true. Especially <laughs> when she didn't come back with it in 2007. You thought for sure. Once Pip played The Waitress in its 98 version, you thought, here comes everything, IIE. Yep. Nothing's off the table. But no. Nevertheless, we were wondering, why does there got to be a sacrifice? And why does it got to be IIE? <laughs> now, what doll would have done IIE in 07? I could actually see it being... Isabel, but she wouldn't have the fire to pull it off. Well, I don't think that would actually happen, but just thematically in terms of who it would belong to, I could see it belonging to Isabel. But obviously you'd want to see Pip perform it. Well, here's the thing is we might have hit the discrepancy of why she didn't play it in 07. Is like it is an Isabel or even a Clyde song, depending on which angle she's taking. Mm. But they weren't performing the way Pip performed. And it would have to be performed, you know, like the just say yes part, like that bridge. Right. That's not a Clyde thing or an Isabel thing. No. So she's like, can it? I can't imagine Clyde wailing that out from behind her scarf. And her bangs. Yeah. It just wouldn't have worked. I am disappointed that she didn't pull it out in 2011 for Night of Hunters though with the quartet 
I think it could have been beautiful. Yeah, I kind of think you disagree with me a little bit, but I think that Ai and Cruel occupy a similar sonic space to her, and that sometimes she chooses between the two. It's going to be Ai or Cruel, and that's sort of what I put out there in terms of why Cruel was on Venus and not Ai or both. And in this case, when she was going for a radical rearrangement that was going to blow everyone away, it was a choice between Ai no, or I Cruel. No, I agree with you there, especially... They seem to be conjoined twins. They were born together. They were born on that same week vacation. They were sound checked together the very first time in Boston. Mm-hmm. They're the pre-existing choir girl. Yeah, I can understand why she might look at them as twins when she couldn't play IIE at the beginning of the Native Invader tour. What did she play? Cruel. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. You're so right? right. Yeah. So they hold a similar energy, I would say. Yeah. That's probably why it wasn't worked up in Night of Hunters. And Cruel was the more stark rearrangement or the more shocking rearrangement, I mm-hmm, guess, mm-hmm. of the two that could have happened. So, yeah. And because we're sort of theorizing that IE changes meaning or has changed meaning over time, it seems to me that Cruel is a song that she can always access no matter what. And she has to be in a certain headspace or there have to be certain events transpiring for her to go to IIE. And that that just wasn't happening during Night of Hunters. So, yeah. Well, in 2014, she performed it 31 times. And I think by this point, it has fully taken on like a political meaning to her. Mm -hmm. I do as well. But another reason why I would imagine it came back was because she's talked so much about losing confidence and reassessing who she was as an artist and dealing with menopause and turning 50 and all of that. And that Tosh kind of challenged her to go out there solo and rock it. So I feel like this was one of the songs she chose to showcase the fact that she could do that and pull it off solo and also to totally invalidate what she told jen years before when she said the song was telling her not to go there <laughs> i guess she got permission right, to go there right. he said access granted yeah <laughs> um and also like she knew what the people wanted she knows uh, she's like getting requests daily every show she does she gets the request so she knows how badly people wanted IIE. So that's why when she worked it up in 2014, it ended the show. And it consistently ended the show or was the second to the last song of each night. So it was either the last songs or the second to last song for the most part. One or two times it was the third to last song. But it always landed in that spot because she knew it was a crowd pleaser. And I wonder also because she had spent so much time, her last two tours were with the quartet and then with the orchestra. And because in comparison, those performances and the songs Songs that she chose were more mannered, that she really wanted something mm-hmm. that she could sort of unleash and let go on, and IAE is a good choice for that. Because yeah. a lot of times I think, you know, Agreed. she follows up, her next project is often kind of a reaction to what she did before, and she wants to pivot a little bit, so. This is Monday, May 5th, 2014, in Cork, Ireland, the first time she ever did it solo. Thank you. 
here's an amazing version from Poland on June 12th, This is July 18th in Portland, Oregon. Just say yes. first time you heard this song live solo it must have been at the greek that summer i mean aside unless we're counting listening to bootlegs but the first time i was there i believe that was my first show of that tour so yeah here's july 23rd 2014 in la This is the last time she performed it on that tour, and it was August 24th in Miami, Florida.
never expected to see it again. If you don't know a horse, look at its track record. <laughs> Does one tour, takes several off. Yeah, you're so right. That was an anti gracism <laughs> Like drinking from a fire hose. Fire hydrant. Like drinking from a yeah. fire hydrant. Well, we could say that <laughs> IAE Live is like drinking from a fire hydrant. When you get it, it blasts you in the face for 50 shows and then it gets shut off and disappears. <laughs> so I would uh, take issue with the term blasts you in the face. <laughs> I wouldn't. Other than that, accurate. <laughs> but much to everyone's surprise, she performed it 39 times on the Native Invader tour. Yeah. Which was... Uh, she only did 49 shows, so that's great. It was even more of a staple than it was the tour before, shockingly enough. And in fact, it was cemented as the opener, and she only stopped doing it because she, mm -hmm. we have to imagine, because she got sick and had to sub it out for something yeah. that was a little easier on her voice. Unless she wanted to stop doing it, so she faked getting sick, which I don't see that happening. Yeah. Wow, what an elaborate conspiracy theory that was. She's like, how do I get out of playing IIE? It's a crowd pleaser, and everyone's coming for it, but I don't want to play it anymore. I can't just stop. I know. I'll pretend I'm sick. People are expecting it. <laughs> this is September 6, 2017. Again in Cork, Ireland. Again the first show of tour, but this time opening the tour. This is November 11th, 2017 in Durham, North Carolina for David Keith Alexander. she played at every show until she got sick and the first time being new orleans where it was like oh my god that was an amazing show but after she got sick and then after she got better she brought it back and here is when she finally brought it back this was november 24th 2017 in seattle at the paramount theater and i was there She did it two more times that tour and ended the whole tour by opening with the song again. Mm. It was December 3rd, 2017 in LA. Were you shocked? I was shocked. And I really had gotten to the point where I was like, am I really not going to hear IAE or Reindeer King this entire tour? But uh. she pulled it out there at the end.
What did you think of these performances of IAE? And what did you think of it as an opener? Loved them. Loved them. I w- it was a little hard sold as an opener at the beginning, but once I was in the audience at the first show of the US leg, I was like, yeah, I'm into it. Once I was there, made sense. I had a little bit of a hard time with IE and Cruel and or Cruel as openers because of the way that they were arranged. Like when I see Tori solo or with the band for that matter, but specifically when I see Tori solo, I want her to walk out, have that moment where she sits at the piano, dramatically hits some low notes and like launches into something. And for me, starting a song with a loop on the keyboard, it just seemed kind of anemic and a little lifeless to me. And it was like, once we got through that, when she turned to the piano for song, too that's when the show really started for me but it wasn't quite the the bang the kind of wow moment that i was hoping for that's how i felt when i was listening to the bootlegs that's exactly how i felt but once i was there i was like oh i get it like this whole this whole show is about the line i know we're dying and there's no sign of a parachute Mm. this whole show was about that and that to me is why that song was first like okay this is all about spending the whole show there so it had to be the opener and that's how i felt Mm -hmm. i think i would have preferred the arrangement from the geraldine's tour i think that would have made more of a statement and been kind of more of a wow opener but you know no that's interesting i would have preferred the 98 arrangement i would have preferred if suddenly the band walked out they did that one song and then they left totally (laughs) or the fake muse sign went up and there was the band standing there revealed shockingly Uh, oh my god i would prefer a solo tour where in the middle the sign comes down tori's bar and then it's like a rock show for two songs that seems not cost effective but it sounds fun (laughs) but it would be worth it i think we'd contribute to that if need be just two band songs right in the middle yeah tori's club plugged plug it that's Mm. what it would just say club plugged listening to the Craigmatics remix of IIE. You can find this and all our remixes on our remix archive page. If you head over to our website, songsoftoriamus.com, there's a link right there at the top. With your ears and your With your ears and your through choir girl no that's not true yeah, oh yeah is. that is true <laughs> i forgot where we were what song are we in what day is this we're song scholars not mathematicians i don't know the calendar especially during this quarantine <laughs> if you like what we do please head over to our patreon page patreon.com slash songs where you can become a supporter today There's many different podcasts at many different levels that you can access once you are a supporter. So please head over and do that right away. Don't hesitate. Run, don't walk. Let your fingers do the walk-in. And if you really like us and you want more of us in your life, you can head over to Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter and type in at Songs of Tori and Miss and there will be pretty much guaranteed. (laughs) Head over to iTunes and leave us a review. 
and a five-star rating if you know what's good for you. We're coming for you, NPR. Well, now we're sixth. Now we're sixth in the list. We were fifth, and sometimes we'd be four, depending on the day. We're falling? But we're sixth now. Yeah, because she did a booked up. It's because these podcasts that have nothing to do with Tori Amos, then they simply use her name, then they get up higher than us. Help us, people. Help us help you. Help us. Anyway, we'll be back for Liquid Diamonds. Likewood? Anything else to say, David? I think we've said it all. IIE has said it all. Thanks, IIE. I guess we'll see you next time. Time. That just came to me. Uh, genius. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com.